You're listening to episode 31 of the Secret Origins Podcast, featuring the story of the Justice Society of America. It's kind of a big deal. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and this is the end of an era. Today, my guests and I cover the origin of the world's first super team, a gathering of eight mystery men whose adventures began in four different comics from two different publishers, The Flash, The Atom, the Spectre, Green Lantern, Hawkman, Sandman, Hourman, and Dr. Fate. Together, in 1940, they formed the Justice Society of America. And in this episode of Secret Origins, we're going to tell you how it all happened. To honor this momentous occasion required more than one guest host. More than two, in fact. I needed my very own super squad. My first guest is the host of the All-Star Comics Review, a podcast devoted to the classic stories of the Justice Society of the Golden Age. Please welcome Mr. Al Gerding. Welcome back, Al. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for asking me to do this. I am excited to cover this story. I hope so, because nobody else is. Now, my next guest reviews the Silver Age exploits of the Justice Society from their annual team-ups with the Justice League on his King Size Comics Giant Size Fun podcast. He is the pride of Iowa. Welcome back, Mr. Kyle Benning. Hey, thanks for having me. Welcome back. Welcome back. Missed you. And, of course... No, you didn't. That's all right. (laughs) And my final guest... Well, he just sort of showed up on this call. He's like a vampire. You invite him onto the show once, and he can come back whenever he wants. Welcome back, the irredeemable Shag. Wow, everyone else got these wonderful introductions. <laughs> Thanks, man. I'm so glad to be here. <laughs> no, it is, it is great to have all of you on the show at the same time. For now, anyway, I mean, I might feel very differently in an hour, but we'll see. An hour? You really think we can get this done in an hour? (laughs) I'm crossing my fingers. (laughs) People, if this is your first time listening to the show, or if you've never heard of Secret Origins before, allow me to explain. Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in the series, more than 25% of which were written by Roy Thomas. Which brings me to why I mentioned in the intro to this episode that this is the end of an era. With one exception, later in the series, this is Roy Thomas's last issue on the book. Gasp. 
Secret Origins was born out of Thomas's desire to revisit and republish the origins of his beloved Golden Age heroes, the vast majority of which were marginalized or dismissed after the crisis. The formation of the JSA was the zenith of that age, so it makes perfect sense that Roy Thomas would leave the series he helped create at this point, feeling he'd accomplished his mission. So, Kyle, you won the three-sided coin toss. Tell us how and when you first discovered the Justice Society of America. Oh, man, that's a tough one. I do not remember an era of reading comics where I don't know the JSA, I guess. It probably probably stems from who's who, really. And then uh, probably their dollar comics era stories from Adventure Comics that continued the uh, All-Star Comics run after that was one of the, the casualties of the implosion. That was probably my first exposure there. I believe that was Adventure Comics 461 through 466. Is that right, Al? I'm sorry. I wasn't listening. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Kylo Benning stretch again. And the first hole in the ship's hole <laughs> begins to show. We're Ooh. leaking quickly. Yikes. Um, probably, probably that. And then uh, the follow-up to that would have been the uh, probably my next foray into – Following the adventures of the JSA, it probably would have been uh, Lynn Straczewski and uh, Mike Parabek, 90 series. That first series what was it, eight issues. Parabek drew some of it, and then uh, he drew most of the 10-issue the follow-up run. Shag, how did you discover these characters? How did I discover them was in Justice League of America number 171. It was one of the annual crossovers. It's the one where Mr. Terrific is murdered. That's and exactly was... what I was thinking of. <laughs> and That's was... why I wasn't listening to Kyle. I was thinking which issue I had first. <laughs> Nice save, Al. <laughs> yeah, was, sure. <laughs> it was bought for me by my sister as a present, uh, just to try and cheer me up. And I read it, and I did not understand what the hell I was reading, why there were two green – because you know I knew the Super Friends, but I couldn't understand why there were two Green Lanterns, why there were two Hawkmen, all these things. And I must have read that thing a zillion times and thought it was fantastic. So that was my very first exposure to JSA. Then, of course, there was the crisis. That's probably where I began to fall in love with them. Uh, I also fell in love with the same Parabek series that Kyle just referenced. But between Crisis and when the Parabek series came out, I had stalked the 50-cent bins and bought all of the 1970s all-star comics that I could. Uh, glad you mentioned Super Squad earlier because uh, that was actually my online handle for a long time. I loved, loved the 70s JSA uh, adventures. And Al, what was your first experience? Honestly, it was the Mr. Terrific issue. I had the very first part of that, and I didn't get the second part of it until much, much later. And then as soon as Justice League hit the 190s, I think it was uh, they had the little insert for All-Star Squadron, and I read that. 193. 193, and then the JLA-JSA crossover for 195, 196, and 197, I absolutely fell in love with them. So as soon as the All-Star Squadron came out, I had to – as you guys know, I'm a huge JSA fan. I had to buy everything I could that had the JSA in it. So that Mr. Terrific story kind of piqued my interest. But as soon as those 190 issues all came from uh, Justice League, it was like a, a waterfall. I had to get, grab as much as I could. That issue of uh, 195, 96, and 97 of Justice League is one of my favorite Justice League stories. I love that three-parter. There's a Graham Cracker Comics is a, a comic book chain in Illinois and they had they printed these uh, special um, gift cards that all the gift cards were famous comic book covers, and one of them was the cover to issue 195 
uh, and I used that gift card. And then after I used it, I asked him if I could have it back just because <laughs> I wanted that cover like back in my – like I, I could just ho- hold on to that card. If, if I can just jump in since everyone else got a wonderful introduction and I didn't, just to <laughs> throw my, my cred around real quick. I, uh, I also forgot to mention All-Star Squadron. Thank you, Al. I forgot to mention that, my passion for that. But for me, JSA was my favorite team hands down for many, many years. In fact, when I got into the whole crazy blogging, podcasting universe, my intention was to create a JSA blog. But when I went out there, there were so many other ones already. I was like, oh, I'm just going to get lost in a sea of other ones, and I probably won't be able to do as good as these other guys. Never mind. I'll just do this guy whose head's on fire instead. And that's how I got to be known as the guy who loves Firestorm. But in reality, my passion for the JSA is probably stronger than my passion for Firestorm. Wow. And thus endeth the Fire and Water podcast. (laughs) I do have to say the JSA is the reason I started listening to podcasts because I was searching the internet just for any kind of information. And I came across uh, Michael Bailey's and Scott Gardner's Tales of the JSA podcast. And I've never listened to a podcast before that. And that was only a year and a half, two years ago. And now... That has drawn me in. I am flooded. I'm listening to Shags. I'm listening to Ryan's. I'm listening to Kyle's. I subscribe to so many podcasts now, thanks to the JSA, and I'm doing one on my own now. So, And it is a great show. Yours as well as uh, Tales of the JSA by Bailey and Gardner. My, of course, this is, I'm going to sound much more like a neophyte when I say this, of course, because I was really getting into comics in the 90s. My first experience with a lot of these characters was tangentially through Sandman Mystery Theater. Mm. Um, That's where I first met Sandman. That's where I first met Our Man and some of these other kind of characters. And then it was the the James Robinson miniseries Golden Age, Mm. which I loved. But... They were just sort of these pocket little because they were period pieces that felt very disconnected from the rest of the DC universe. I kind of always associated the Justice Society as something separate. So before I ever knew what All Star Squadron was, before I knew about the Earth One Earth Two distinction, that just wasn't in my on my radar when I was starting these comics. It was just this kind of weird other alternate version of DC's history. And eventually, you know, once once I discovered JSA and what uh, Robinson and Goyer and then Johns did with that series, I loved the legacy aspect of it. But because my first exposure was through Mystery Theater and Golden Age, I've always kind of felt like the characters are of their time period, that they really do belong in that World War II era, late 30s, early 40s, maybe going into the 50s if you're continuing the generations a little bit. So like when they did the Earth 2 book for the New 52, I was like, then it's just, it's the Justice League by any other name. You're just redesigning the costumes. What made these guys unique was putting them in this particular era. And they, I'm glad that you mentioned him. that series, because I actually, that, that was one I was really torn on. That Earth 2 series, I think Robinson wrote, what, like the first 16 issues of that? And that yeah, was actually that. some of the best stuff Robinson's done in years, in my opinion. And uh, I actually enjoyed the story. I just hated the characters it was being told with. But uh, like you said, that would, be, that would have been a great Justice League story. It would have been better than any of the Justice League stories he came up with during his run on Justice League right before New 52. But uh, just hated that that was the only take on the, the classic JSA that we were getting. And it was far from the classic era and their origin. I think it's a very fair summation there. You know, great comic, not about those characters, though. Yeah, totally. And now it's worth mentioning there's a new Justice Society book on the horizon with this DC rebirth. Um, now, by the time this comes out, maybe more news will be out. I don't know. And I'm famous for being wrong. But 
the two pillars the Justice Society stand on are a World War II era and patriotism, or if you're going to take it to modern day, it's about legacy. And if they don't capture one or both of those, it's going to miss the mark again. Uh, let's get to uh, publication history. As always, if I leave something, if I glaringly omit something, please let me know in the nicest possible way, Shag. Um, about to cover, uh, what, 60, 75 years of history? So go ahead. Let's see how this goes. <laughs> In 1940, Green Lantern and the Atom starred in All-American Comics, while Flash and Hawkman headlined Flash Comics. All-American and Flash Comics were both published by All-American Publications. That same year, The Sandman and Our Man were regular fixtures of Adventure Comics, and Dr. Fate and the Spectre made their homes in More Fun Comics. More Fun and Adventure were products of National Publications. Over the course of time, All-American and National Publications would merge and, along with Detective Comics, become something approximating what we know today as DC Comics. But long before that, All-American and National embarked on a joint venture called All-Star Comics, an anthology book meant to showcase the best characters from each publisher. The first two issues of All-Star Comics contained eight short stories, but these were self-contained adventures of the heroes that didn't cross over in any way. That changed with All-Star Comics issue 3. For the first time, eight previously unacquainted superheroes interacted with each other in the same pages. Flash, Green Lantern, Doctor Fate, Hawkman, Sandman, Hourman, the Atom, and the Spectre shared a table as the Justice Society of America. The solo tales of the book stars were now framed by scenes of the heroes conversing, socializing, and making fun of guest stars like Johnny Thunder and the Red Tornado. <laughs> All-Star Comics kept this anthology format for about seven years, until around issue 38 or 39, I think. The solo stories were dropped in favor of larger book-length adventures starring the entire cast of heroes. This was truly the world's first super team in comics. But, as with the vast majority of comics during the Golden Age, sales dwindled by the early 1950s. After 57 issues, the superheroes were dropped from All-Star, and the book was retitled All-Star Western. The legacy of the Justice Society would endure, though. Before the decade was over, DC would create a new team of All-Stars, this one called the Justice League of America. After the concept of multiple Earths was introduced in the Silver Age Flash comics, it wasn't long before writer Gardner Fox, penciler Mike Sikowski, and editor Julius Schwartz brought the Justice Society of America back, if only for one or two issues every year. Finally, in 1976, DC resurrected All-Star Comics, beginning with issue 58, continuing the numbering of the original series prior to its change to Western tales. Amazingly, the in-story origin of the Justice Society's forming was not told until almost 40 years after their first appearance. Writer Paul Levitz and artist Joe Staten told the tale in the final issue of DC Special, published in 1977. All-Star Comics' second life would only last 17 issues. A handful of the group's adventures were told in backup strips and other books, but the Heroes of Earth 2 would not go away for long. In 1981, Roy Thomas picked up the reins of the Golden Age characters in the pages of All-Star Squadron No. 1, and then again in Infinity Incorporated, and again in Young All-Stars, and again in Secret Origins. Not even the death of the multiverse would force the JSA from Thomas's grip but the 90s would. 
Although a lot of crap fell on the JSA during the extreme decade, the 90s did produce two different comic series titled Justice Society of America, the first time that had ever happened since their creation in 1940. The decade ended with a new title, JSA, that finally brought the classic heroes back to their rightful place as elder statesmen of the DC Universe. And some other stuff has happened in the last 20 years, but I'm not going to get into that now. Uh, did I leave anything significant out of that history that pertains to this episode? No, eh, it sounds just, like you got everything. Probably just the, the way it was retconned and they saying in the 1950s they faced the, uh, what, American or un-American committee? Hewak yes. House on American Activities Committee. Yeah. Where they were uh, asked to unmask and they refused and they disappeared. And that's how they sort of explained how the, the, the disappearance of the heroes from the comics in the 50s. And that was done in the America versus JSA four-parter, which is, if you want to kind of get a, a brief overview, uh, brief, it's... it's yeah, I was going to say, it's not you sit, <laughs> you sit down and read the four issues, it's going to take you two hours, but kind of a brief overview or index of the JSA's Golden Age Adventures. That series serves as a great point of that i guess if it serves no other purpose it's great at indexing all the jsa's golden age adventures before the wikipedia that thing was like the bomb for understanding well, it, it was great too because inside the inside the back cover you had all roy's index notes it was probably the prequel i guess to the all-star companion of like a panel by panel. oh on page 12 he says this line well that's in reference mm-hmm. to this movie that came out in 1947 it's kind of yeah fun to go back and read all those the covers are stunning too yes yes they are so yes, you, you did a you did a you know a decent job, Ryan. I mean, I suppose for someone who just read it off a Wikipedia page, it's fine. <laughs> I liked it when Al said you did a good job, and then I'm I'm just going to edit everything after he said that. <laughs> <laughs> I would have went into the showcases with Our Man and Doctor Fate, but I'm kind of a completist, so you did a good job. <laughs> we had our own episodes for that. Damn it. <laughs> All right, folks, we are going to take a short break, but we will be back in a couple of minutes with the origin of the Justice Society of America. Hey there, my name is Al Gerding, and I have a favor to ask. If you're a fan of the Justice Society of America or other DC Comics Heroes of the Golden Age, please listen to my new podcast, The All-Star Comics Review. Grab your reprints, DC Archive editions, or the original comics if you're lucky enough to own them, and let's explore the adventures of the JSA and other Golden Age greats. Follow along with the All-Star Comics Review podcast, now found on iTunes, allstarcomicsreview.blogspot.com and Facebook. Secret Origins 31 has a cover date of October 1988, but if you asked Per Degaton to go back in time and get you a brand new (laughs) copy hot on the shelf, he would travel back to June 21st, 1988. The issue cost $1.50 and sports a cover by Michael Bayer and Bob Downs, the same pencil and ink team who provided the interior pages. Mark Wade edited the book, Gene Semek lettered it, Carl Gafford colored it, and Roy Thomas wrote the story. Not quite his final story for Secret Origins, but his last for a while, anyway. Uh, Shag, what do you think of this cover? 
I enjoy the JSA, the, the seven members of the JSA standing there heroically, and then someone reminded him to add the atom. <laughs> That's hard to argue. I do think that they look like Green Lantern looks very heroic in this, much more than he does in the inside. I think he did a really good job on the cover, uh, and it's in some ways it's it's a stronger cover than the interiors are. Kyle, what do you think? Yeah, I pretty much agree with that assessment. I think part of the improvement on the cover versus the interiors is just the printing quality. I don't know about your guys' personal copy, and we'll get into that more as the we look at the internal art, but mine is an awful example of the printing process. All the colors are out of the lines. So it's kind of refreshing to see a, a cleaner printed cover. Like Shag said, it's fairly iconic, and all the heroes look pretty heroic, except for the totally out of proportion, tiny little Adam guy jumping up saying, Hey, remember me! But, uh, <laughs> I, I did like that they incorporated the Justice Society logo that they also used on the Secret Origin of the JSA from uh, DC Special number 29. It's a nice touch. But uh, yeah, Green Lantern looks great. Al, what do you uh, think? I think our man looks like he's scrunching in there to get in the picture. His arm's a little cockeyed. <laughs> he just It's like when you do a big group photo and you don't have enough room, so you kind of turn to the side to scrunch in there. But the colors look great in, on mine. I like all the uh, the costumes. Our Man really looks sharp with the yellow and black. Wait, wait, wait. Just a second. Going back to Our Man, I assume some of that black we're seeing is, you know, shadow from underneath his cape, so it's just indistinguishable. But if you look at the placement of his belt and stuff, that's got to be kind of the center. It looks like he is Fat Albert. Mm. <laughs> it does. <laughs> so... I made this comment when I was talking about issue 26's cover, the one with uh, Black Lightning and Miss America, that at a quick glance, I really like the cover. It's colorful, all the characters look heroic, they look good and everything like that, and it's, it's a nice, pleasing cover. The more you look at it, the more, the more you scrutinize it, uh, not so much. What Kyle just pointed out, where is the center mass on our man? Where is the center of his body? It, the lines don't seem to make it. Adam is clearly not in the same physical space as the other guys. It's sort of like a movie poster, like when you get the movie Avengers on the poster, but it's like, okay, they weren't posing for that. These are individual shots that were all cut and pasted together. Why, like, Hawkman is like a di- in the distant background at a quick glance, I like it because it's colorful and it shows me who it's about, but the more I look at it, I was like, uh, it could have been better, could have been a little bit more interesting. Hey, after 30 years, thanks for ruining this cover. For <laughs> I was just going to say the same thing. You jerks, because now I can't unsee the fact that Green Lantern's wearing uh, old man high water pants. <laughs> and well, he wears that the whole time through the issue. So. I can't figure <laughs> out why they're not sitting down at the table. That's the classic image of them gathered at the table. Why are they... That would have made the most sense to either put yeah. it on the first page or on the cover to have them at the table. But, and, but now, now I see Green Lantern's insignia is like the size of a quarter. Oh, God. You destroyed this cover for me. And it doesn't line up with his belt buckle? Oh, my gosh. Uh, Kyle. I hate this cover. This is the worst <laughs> friggin' cover ever. There. It, it's, it's no Ernie Chan who's who cover. But <laughs> That's it's, right. Uh, God, that Solomon Grundy. Ernie Cologne? I, oh, yeah. That thing haunts, haunts my dreams. <laughs> Uh, Kyle mentioned the uh, printing process, which actually this is not uh, a victim of that, but I didn't have to go to Mike's Amazing to look at the cover dates for this particular issue because my copy actually has the date stamped on it right beneath Hawkman's left wing. It says J-U-L for July 2-1, 1988. 
Like how bizarre. I, I don't know where this copy came from. I don't remember when I got. I think I, I think I bought this from my like mycomicshop.com or maybe I got it at like a back issue bin. But it's got the cover date, the what would have been the the original release date, like stamped on it. Maybe it's actually Mike's original copy, <laughs> and that's how he keeps track of when comics comes out. That's he how stamps he them on the cover, and that's how uh, some of the, some of the comics he owns are probably upwards of a grand. I would really hope he's not writing the on sale date <laughs> on the covers. <laughs> You know what would make this copy of Action Comics number one better? <laughs> Is if I just write property of. I don't know if you guys are friends with him on Facebook, but he had posted a couple months back. He now literally has every single DC comic, including variant covers, published between 1960 and 2010. Yeah, I've heard. I've heard. That's nuts. Wow. Mike Voiles, man, uh, man after my own heart. All right, let us get into this actual story. Al. Are you good to tell us the first part of the origin of the Justice Society? Yes, sir, I can. The splash page shows Green Lantern, the Hawkman, the Sandman, the Flash, Dr. Fate, Our Man, and the Atom towering over the Earth as a ghostly form of the Spectre looks on behind them. Uh, The page two credits read Roy Thomas writer, Michael Bear Penciler, inker Bob Downs, colorist Carl Gafford, letterer Gene Simic, and Mark Wade editor featuring the granddaddy of all superhero teams, the Justice Society of America, created by Sheldon Mayer and Gardner Fox. Uh, Special thanks to William Hernandez, who did the layouts, who also happens to be Bear's brother, I found out. Mm. The narrative page reads, The date is November 9th, 1940, the same day the British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain passed away. Germany's Blitzkrieg or Lightning War is overtaking most of Western Europe. The only thing standing in the way of Germany's total mastery of the continent is the Royal Air Force, the British Navy, and Chamberlain's successor, Winston Churchill. Franklin Delano Roosevelt has just won re-election for his third term as president of an America that is officially neutral in the Great War being fought overseas. Cut to the White House, FDR is visited by a man named Smythe, who was sent by the Chief of British Security Coordination to ask America to actively join the war effort against Germany. The British have discovered that Hitler plans to move forward with Operation Sea Lion, which their spies have learned is a secret attack against England. Because FDR had promised America's citizens that he has no intentions of sending troops overseas, He unfortunately cannot join the war directly, but he does understand that England cannot fall to the Nazis. He offers up another and possibly a better solution. He shares a top-secret file with Smythe, a file that contains information regarding the various mystery men that have recently popped up in America. In the file, we see photographs of the Hour Man, Green Lantern, Flash, Dr. Fate, Sandman, the Hawkman, Adam, the Spectre, And the Spectre apparently took time out of dispensing bloody vengeance upon evildoers long enough for somebody to uh, take a picture of him. (laughs) FDR suggests that Smythe contact a few or all of these heroes as they are private citizens and their assistance would not be considered government involvement into the war. Smythe prays that they can help stop the invasion because the fates of both Great Britain and the U.S. now rest in their hands. The scene then shifts to Keystone City, where the Flash is apprehending two bank robbers. He deposits them with a police officer, who passes him a message that he is wanted in Gotham City. As the Flash super speeds towards Gotham, he wonders why Gotham's police commissioner called for him, as he had heard that city has its own hotshot crime buster. 
Arriving at Police Commissioner Davis's office, he meets the Green Lantern and the aforementioned Smythe. Geo and Flash develop a man crush on each other as they both gush and flatter the other crime-fighting <laughs> reputation until Smythe interrupts them and fills them in as to the purpose of the meeting. After hearing that the president has authorized Smythe to request their assistance with a top-secret mission in Scotland, Geo and the Flash are easy sells, and they agree to help. Before departing, the Green Lantern asks Commissioner Davis to pass along a sealed letter to Miss Irene Miller of Apex Broadcasting in case he doesn't return. Now, just a quick side note, since the story doesn't go into this any further, Irene Miller appeared in several stories with GL in his early adventures of all American comics. The Flash and Green Lantern later arrive in Scotland at McMurdy Castle, which is the suspected Nazi base for the upcoming invasion. The heroes bust through the wall and make short work of the Nazi troops. The troops' commander, Major Stryker, unleashes a large and deadly robot named the Murder Machine to defend the castle against the American invaders. The robot is extremely powerful and fast and takes Green Lantern by surprise by slamming him into the ground. The Flash charges in to rescue his new friend, but he also underestimates the speed of the large machine and is also knocked out. All right. Thank you very much. That is the first part of the story. Al, since you took the time to do up that synopsis, what did you think of this early part of the story? Uh, I don't think any of us are going to say this is a better origin than the DC Special 29, but it was fun to read. Uh, It is missing the Batman, which is always sad, but it is fun to see kind of the first time Green Lantern and the Flash meet because that is a friendship that lasts until this day, basically. So for over 70 years, they're best friends. And uh, I always enjoyed the murder machine. I enjoyed it when they showed him in DC Special 29. I enjoyed seeing it again here. And it also appears in a later issue of the JSA series. So I thought that was kind of a fun throwback. Um, Major Stryker, I couldn't remember exactly who he became first on, but I did some research. And he turns into the Red Panzer who battles Wonder Woman in her adventures. So I enjoyed the whole story. The first part was great. I picked it because it was the first meeting between GL and the Flash. And that is a historic... I mean, you mentioned that they've been friends for 75 years, but even in the Silver Age incarnations, Hal Jordan and Barry Allen, they were two of the first Silver Age heroes who met each other and developed a friendship before and outside of their Justice League union. Yeah, really good points. Kyle, what did you think? For the most part, I I really enjoyed it. Uh, Right from the beginning, really invokes kind of a a Golden Age aesthetic. We have the the opening splash page. It's kind of iconic and invokes that Golden Age iconography. I think part of that is just the heroes running over the goal kind of reminds me of the the cover to uh, Invaders number one. Mm-hmm. And, and so it already just that image gets you kind of in a, a Golden Age mindset. Does anybody else think that the splash page would have been a better cover than the actual cover? Hmm. Uh, tough to say because from an iconography standpoint, yes. But it when you stare at it for too long, the same sort of glaring issues mm-hmm. kind of break down. Hawkman looks a little wonky. Green Lantern's hips look a little weird. The Flash is the most kinetic character on the page, yet he is the stiffest. And I don't know what's going on with the Adam's right leg here. <laughs> you, you know what? It may have been an original cover uh, proposed. Because if you look at the blank space across the top, that is That's where true. the logo could go. Yeah, um, but uh, as we'll see later, I don't think that Bayer, at least in this issue, is necessarily the greatest at filling up the full page with the figure works. Oh, I agree. And then the the Apocalyptian fire pits the bursting out of that page as well um, don't match up with where the wars was actually happening in World War II. Well, one's coming out of an ocean, so... Right. <laughs> uh, 
then uh, just kind of continuing that golden age aesthetic through the, the second and third page of the story, we get a lot of text pages that are text boxes and panels that are pretty much just all exposition that just kind of fill in the context of the story. That's very common in golden age comic stories. Uh, you just get that heavy exposition dump to really set the stage. I mean, most of those stories back then are working on eight to 10 pages max to tell a story. So there's usually a lot of setup. So uh, having read a, a lot of golden age comics lately, that just kind of stuck out to me as, hey, it's still uh, kind of continues that golden age aesthetic through the first three pages. Bear's art, despite uh, the negative things I've said so far, is actually uh, pretty solid through the most part of this. It's, it's uh, page four, I believe, yes, where uh, FDR is looking at kind of the uh, character profiles of the JSA members. That's a pretty good looking page. Uh, the Flash actually looks all right in the uh, first half of page five, and then you get the far left panel on page five, and that might be the worst panel in the book. I don't know what is going on there flash has stubby arms held in really weird positions and he runs with totally straight legs i and then his left hand is coming out at us so it should be enlarged by perspective but it's way too small i don't know that one's a little rough uh and we get the uh the top panel of page six which uh al alluded to in his uh, synopsis it's the start of the bromance between Jay and Alan Scott. And uh, those two characters, in my opinion, are really kind of the heart and soul of the JSA. It's kind of hard to uh, have a successful JSA, I think, without those two characters as the, the main pillars. Now, uh, if you look at this budding friendship uh, through the New 52 lens, uh, Alan Scott's comments might uh, take on a little different context. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Brian, uh, you're ruining this whole comic for me. <laughs> I've had positive things to say. I, I like the uh, the Golden Age aesthetic it gets. Um, that said, uh, page eight, Flash apparently has an atomic punch. When he hits that guy, it releases Kirby Crackle. It does. <laughs> With Zot. Yeah. Taught, uh, a nod to Scott McCloud there. I'm actually surprised. The, the murder machine, that reminded me exactly of something out of a Captain America, like Kirby comic. Yes, um, very much so. And, it's uh, a great design. I like the, I, I love the look of the murder it machine. Is. It's, it's very A Nazi classic. death robot. It's, it's a perfect. It's, <laughs> yeah, I have to wonder a little bit uh, at what point in the uh, creation process that they named it. Was that after a few field tests? <laughs> Just kind of giving <laughs> Nazis and death. And yeah, I don't go on that one too much. Uh, and then page nine was a really nice uh, cultural reference uh, to the 1935 film The Phantom Empire. I enjoyed Roy's great at throwing in little historical pieces like that. So, mm-hmm. But uh, for the most part, I made fun of a couple panels there, but I actually really enjoyed it. Uh, the story through this first, uh, was it, ten pages is pretty solid. Shag, your thoughts? I have a, a love-hate affair with Michael Bear. Mm. I loved him back in the day, in the late 80s and early 90s, on, on Young All-Stars and books like this. I just thought he was the best, because I loved little tiny lines. Now, as you know, a more cultured comics reader, if you will, um, I think he's a kind of an artist that was struggling. I feel like he's an artist that had basic design down and stuff like that, but then he wanted to take it another step, but didn't quite know where he was going with it. Because like the splash page you guys were talking about, I guess technically it's page two, which is a, a big text dump, and it gives you, you know, like the map of Europe and the big text dump about you know what's going on. It's like like that page is, is not designed well. I don't feel like it may have a golden age aesthetic, but it drives me nuts. I mean, like the American flag. If you're gonna do a patriotic story, dude, get that right as far as the proportions of like the blue box. Um, it, I mean, the number of stars is fine, but I'm just saying that the the box is tiny. You see what oh I'm my god! About? I wish you hadn't pointed that out to me. I, I know. See that? Right. That does not align right with the stripes. I don't it's, remember the exact number, but it should. I think it's the because there's seven red stripes and six white stripes. I think it aligns with like the middle, so it'd be the fourth red stripe is where it's supposed to align with. It should and be a little further down, yeah. So yeah, a lot further down. 
And Ugh. it just it, the page doesn't balance well. Like that kind of stuff just to set me off the wrong at first. But then you get to a page like um, like Kylo Benning mentioned a minute ago, page four, which is a beautiful layout of him, you know, with his collectible JSA trading cards. And I, I was going to really, say, it, it <laughs> looks like the cards from the Mayfair uh, role playing game set. It absolutely, it's even got the baby blue background on him. You're absolutely <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, I really like that page. You know, Dr. Fate looks totally boss there. I mean, it's a great page. So it's like, okay, well, wait a minute. Maybe there's some design here. And then you go to page 10, which is where we left off. But there's the page splits with Dr. Fate and some cool iconography there. So I feel like he was trying, but I, I maybe he just couldn't he, he couldn't get there. Maybe this was rushed. I'm not sure because there are a lot of artistic concerns throughout the book. So it's, it's a love-hate relationship because, again, I do love his stuff, but now I see a lot of the flaws. I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but the robot is like the coolest thing. That is an awesome design. He just looks totally cool bursting through the wall. And you can't help but like – you almost want to cheer for it. You know, like you said, uh, Kyle, it's, it's the naming scheme on him. He was you, maybe he was the maiming machine originally, and then he, you know, after the field test, he succeeded and got the upgrade. I'm not sure, but it's super fun, and and I'm glad that the first team that the first people we saw were Alan and Jay, you know, because to me, they're the heart and soul of the JSA, mm-hmm. and to see them teamed up first just really was great. I have a feeling like Stryker was leading the construction of the this giant robot, and they were kind of crowdsourcing the names. And one of the lowly Nazis like came in and he was telling his buddy, it's like, oh, yeah, I got this new car, this new German Studebaker. We're going to trick it out. We're going to go pick up some chicks and I'm going to call my car the murder machine. And Stryker heard that. He's like, nope, I'm taking that name for the robot. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's that's no, that's a lot more positive take on it than I had. I I figured he probably wiped out a few women and children of a oh. certain religion background that Hitler didn't care for. Oh, you gotta Ooh. ruin everything with the Holocaust. <laughs> <laughs> and Shag laughs. No, I'm more in shock that that just came out of his mouth. Just a few other notes. You know, Roy Thomas has to pepper these things with all of the little details. Um, I did actually look up Operation Sea Lion, which was a proposed naval and ground assault on Britain by the Nazis. And by this point, I mean, this story is supposedly set in November of 1940. That operation was pretty much abandoned by September of that year. Uh, So we're definitely taking, I mean, who'd have thought we're taking a little bit of creative license with this story about, you know, wizards and mystery men, costume superheroes. When we have this Mr. Smythe going to visit the president, they drop a reference to a Mr. Stevenson. That is, I think, William Stevenson, who was a Canadian soldier, who was pretty much like the spy master of all of the Allied forces during World War II. I thought that uh, Smythe guy seemed like a, a pretty nice guy, considering that him or one of his heirs would go on to create a bunch of spider slayers to kill Spider-Man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we mentioned one of the big differences between this new post-crisis origin and what we had in the DC special issue 29 is the absence of Superman and Batman. They were both the kind of unofficial sort of... Al, how would you describe their role in the Justice Society in the Golden Age? Well, they were honorary members of the Justice Society during the original All-Star Comics run. But during that DC Special 29, you see they were a major part of the formation of the Justice Society. I think Shag is doing Section 3 or Part 3 of this, and you'll see how the absence of Superman is overcome by Roy Thomas taking the story in a totally different direction Mm -hmm. than what had happened in the 70s. Like I said, I've always been a huge fan of Golden Age Superman and Batman, 
And just because of their absence, I don't love this story like I love the one from the 70s. They've always been a part of it ever since I've been following them. So it's kind of a tough issue to cover just because it had to change so much. DC did not do Roy Thomas a favor with the Crisis of Infinite Earths. And uh, because of that reason, it was a good story, but I do not like the results of it. And this issue kind of headlines the whole reason why. That's very interesting, Al. And now I'm going to tell you where you're wrong, because I'll put it out there. The JSA is better without Superman and Batman. Post-Crisis JSA is better. Let's table this conversation until we get to the end of the issue. We'll come back to that. Uh, Kyle, can you tell us the second part of this origin story? I sure can. So, after Alan Scott and Jay Garrick get their butts whooped by the murder machine... In his tower in Salem, Massachusetts, Dr. Fate witnesses that terrible beatdown in his crystal orb, and so with haste, he seeks out the aid of Rex TikTok Tyler, otherwise known as the Hour Man. Dr. Fate uses his magical powers to whisk Hour Man away and transport them both to Berlin, interrupting one of Hitler's public speeches, right before the ruthless dictator can publicly execute the captured Flash and Green Lantern with the Spear of Destiny. Dr. Fate blinds and disarms some Nazi guards while our man frees the captive Green Lantern and Flash just as Hitler unleashes the power of the Spear of Destiny. Calling upon the Valkyrie women warriors of Asgard legend, including Gudra, a future member of the Axis of America supervillain team that would oppose the young All-Stars. With Fate's incredible magical powers useless against Hitler while he wields the spear, he and the other three heroes take to the air to battle the war maidens that Hitler has summoned. Gudra and the Valkyries make short work of Fate and the Flash while the four heroes are temporarily in disarray, Valkyries on their winged steeds fly off to crush England, with Hitler's navy not far behind. Dr. Fate realizes that he and the other three heroes are going to need help if they are to stop the German war machine, so he uses his fantastic powers to summon the aid of three additional American mystery men. The Sandman, Wesley Dodds, Hawkman, Carter Hall, and Al Pratt, the Atom, and then carries them to the battlefront at the White Cliffs of Dover, while a fourth probe summons a mysterious fourth hero, hidden in shadow. At the British coast, the Atom and Sandman join the British infantry troops in repelling the Nazi ground attack, while Hawkman takes to the skies and aids the Royal Air Force in knocking down the German Luftwaffe attack planes. The combined might of the three costume heroes and the British forces appear to gain the upper hand on the German invasion. That is, until the Nazi naval reinforcements arrive in full force. All looks briefly lost, until the shadowy fourth figure summoned by Dr. Fate materializes, and it's none other than the Spectre. Very nice, very nice. Okay... Kyle, what did you think of these pages? Uh, Art-wise, I think uh, Bear was a little more consistent here in the second chapter. I really enjoyed it. Some interesting, uh, I guess, kind of cultural references that I wasn't real sure that I figured had to have meant something. I guess starting off art-wise, I love the introduction of Fate. We get a kind of a half-page splash of him in his uh, tower. The last uh, panel we see of the war machine, or the murder machine, walking off, leaving uh, Alan Scott and Jay Garrick turns into the uh, image we're seeing in his uh, crystal orb. That's kind of a nice transition, jumping continents here. Page 12, Flash makes a comment uh, that he should have turned left at Flatbush. I tried Googling that, and I came up with maybe that's a street in Brooklyn. And I thought it would have been a nice touch if they would have used the, uh, why not take a a left turn at Albuquerque from Bugs Bunny? Because the (laughs) first time that phrase was used was in the Bugs Bunny short, Hair Meets Hair, the first hair spelled H-E-R-R, where Bugs Bunny gets lost and ends up in a German forest where he's then hunted by a big German stooge. Now, that short came out in January 1945, so three years and two months after this is set, but it's still a World War II kind of propaganda era. (laughs) So that would have been a nice touch if they would have gone that route. Uh, I'm sure Shag will elaborate on this more. Some of the Valkyries are in thongs. 
<laughs> we see in the uh, top panel of page 16. But uh, Gudra, apparently she goes uh, pantyless under her skirt, as seen in the uh, third panel of page 14. It's a bare ass there. Uh, oh, my page... gosh. I didn't even notice that. Oh, How did that come get on, Shay. How could you not notice that? Yeah, no kidding. I... I, I don't know. I'm so embarrassed. I even had that in my notes. <laughs> oh my gosh. We're going to have to give Shag a minute here to now that he's realized yeah, I need this. A minute, definitely. Uh, this comic page, just got a whole new light. Page 16 uh, says the uh, Hammer of Donner. Now that actually means Hammer of Thor. Donner is uh, Teutonic or German for Thor. That's a nice touch because uh, Nazism is obviously very heavily steeped in kind of this Asgardian myth. The idea of the Aryans are the perfect race or these descendants of Asgardian and Viking warriors. Just to cut in on Kyle there, I think that also references the last days of the JSA where the JSA members become some of these Nordic heroes and Green Lantern does become that version of Thor in that story. So I think that's a connection between these two issues. Nice touch. Thank you. I really thought that uh, on pages 19 and 20, those were probably two of the most consistent and well-done pages by Bear. Those are some really nice artwork and dynamic war scenes. Uh, I really dig how the British soldiers kind of recognize who the Sandman is. It just kind of adds to the mystique and legacy of the character a little bit that uh, he's kind of gaining international fame. That was a nice, neat touch. And then well, especially, uh, page... sorry to jump in on it, but the Sandman's debut in Secret Origins issue 7, the story is told he was saving, uh, was it the prince and princess of England at the time when they were visiting That's the right. World's Fair. That's right. Nice callback there. And was then... The, uh, was it the king? Yeah, he was, he was saving the new king. I don't okay. know. And then uh, page 21, German battleship shows up uh, on the scene looking all big and bad. And I wondered if that was uh, supposed to be the Bismarck. You know, from the song, Johnny Horton. Guns as big as steers and shells as big as trees. Movie Sink the Bismarck, 1960. Nothing. I've never seen it. Sorry, bro. We're all still looking at Gudra's rear end on that horse. Yeah, I'm totally distracted. I don't even know Kyle's still talking. (laughs) Full moon and Valhalla. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, the the Bismarck, uh, I think, was christened in 1939. And then... uh, Late uh, 1941, I believe, is when it was finally sunk uh, by the British fleet, but it was the terror of the sea. Mm-hmm. Al, what did you think of these pages? I think Bear does weird well, if that's a sentence. I like all his mystical energies and his uh, all the backgrounds. Shag mentioned he liked the little lines at one time, but he, do- he does the mystical nature of the panels very well, I think, in my opinion. On page 11, when Dr. Fate meets the Hour Man and he says... You have not heard of me for my activities are not for mere mortals to know. You're going to see in this issue three or four more times he talks like that. But he needs to be aware. He's a little too big for his britches. He needs to be aware. The White House has a whole file on him right now. So they know who Dr. Fate is. He goes around this issue bragging how nobody really knows who he is. But the government has its ways. They know who you are. Also, Hinton knows who he is, too. Oh, yeah. Also, uh, it was nice seeing the Spirit of Destiny again. That was a great Roy Thomas invention, I guess. From He didn't invent the Spirit of Destiny, but he brought it into the comics. It was nice seeing that again. How great would it be if we would see the Spirit of Destiny on Legends of Tomorrow? That would be awesome. I, I thought that's what uh, Vandal Savage had when we first saw his spear. I was like, oh, my God. That would be great. Just uh, some other notes. On page 12, Our Man makes a reference, and it was kind of odd where he says he swigged some more Miraclo. I don't know if that's an old 40s reference. You know, at this time, he was still popping the pills, but I just thought that was kind of a weird uh, word to use, swigged. Uh, yeah, on- that, 
that would usually you take a swig of something like a liquid. I've never heard of that like as a pill, like something you would take as a pill form. Like if Miracle was a if it was a juice. Guys, he's got a drug addiction problem. He's coming up with new and inventive ways to <laughs> pump that shit into his body every day. He's going to be talking about smack in a minute. I think uh, page 13, The War Maidens, that would be an epic name for an all-female 80s heavy metal band. I think that would be a great name. And then, of course, page 14. Yeah, and they can dress the same, too. That's true. Now, the uh, outfits in the 70s issue was very different than what they have on now. These are more traditional, old-style, uh, Nordic type of uh, outfits. In the 70s issue, they wore some kind of green and red tight outfits that weren't very nordic at all i guess but uh, i, I kind of like the design of these and then of course that last note i took no underwear in valhalla but we have already covered that shag what did you think if you can pull your eyes away from that one panel but <laughs> i i'm stunned i'm absolutely stunned i, I considered not saying anything and just being like uh, uh. anyway um my love affair in in trouble with michael bear continues we covered a lot of this when we he did the dr fate mm-hmm. issue of secret origins yep. secret admirers might remember and so i think we're seeing a lot of callback to as al described the weird from michael bear does like when dr fate makes his entrance you know there's some weird globes there for like i guess supposed to be crystal balls we get to see a bunch of uh sort of basically naked ghostly figures flying around and i think they're scrumping uh in midair there so there's, there's a lot of weird hookiness going on which looks cool it does but i don't know there's just something i can't put my finger on now he does do dr fate's helmet totally boss the introduction of him and, and our man is a lot of fun now as far as the valkyries go one of the things that bear does is he sort of fills the background with a lot of lines so when they're there Maybe it's supposed to be rain and storm behind them, but again, it's an example of what we saw in the Dr. Fate issue where he just feels like he's got to fill the background with lines. And so there's all these diagonal lines coming down, which sort of muddy it with a bunch of crazy colors. And it's, it's kind of the, it makes the figures not pop as much as they could have, which is a little disappointing. Um, wow, butt shot, page 14. I'm, I, wow, okay. How did they get past comics code? What the heck? That's insane. Well, maybe the comics code was looking at a fully print. No, that doesn't. They wouldn't have, but for some reason they didn't look at it very closely until it was fully printed, and they just missed it because the printing process is so crappy. I don't. Or maybe they saw black and whites and they didn't realize it was going to be flesh colored. I don't know. Well, mine is definitely shaded. There's not like a definitive line, but it's colored slightly darker. And I don't know if that's just supposed to be the shading from the skirt that's riding up, or if it's a miscolor. That's the spanking marks. But anyway, um, on page 15, I, I again, Baird tries to do some creative panel design by giving us a giant map of Europe. And it sort of works. It shows, uh, you know, effort of creativity. But there's something about the handwritten names on the, st- on, the, on the countries that just makes it fall a little flat. But then again, we get to page 16. We get some really great Dr. Fate iconography. So I, I feel like the Dr. Fate panels that he does are probably some of the better ones. I do love the Sandman one because you get Sandman's little poem, which was always sort of a – although it doesn't rhyme. Maybe it doesn't have to rhyme. I don't know anything about poetry. That's not my I'm, – I'm a fighter, not a lover, folks. Anyway, so the, uh, the little poem he writes is, is nice because Sandman used to always do that. I like the little introduction of each character. Adam could have used a little more because you got to see you know, Hawkman flying, talking about his stuff. You see Sandman you know, doing a crime, and Adam just gets captured. So and then the final uh, splash where you get the arrival of the Spectre. Kyle's alluded earlier or, or even said as much that Michael Bear likes to do big pages but doesn't fill the page. The Spectre figure is, is fairly small in comparison to the giant purple explosion and lots of little lines in the background. 
Speaking of Bears art, though, take a look at those three panels on page 20, especially that Hawkman one where he's battling the planes. With all the lines in there, that is probably one of the most dynamic panels of the book. That is very well done. Now, in those cases, the explosions sort of work in their favor because it is a war setting. So you do kind of feel that explosion going on. And the atom does get in there and get to buff, you know, gets a nice crack in there. And um, wow, look, look at Sandman. He is throttling that Nazi. He is going to town on him. And so it's a nice few pages. I, I do like the introduction of those other JSA characters. Now, it does sort of make you wonder when Dr. Fate says, you know, he's got Green Lantern, the Flash, and Our Man, and he needs to call in reinforcements. And so he calls Sandman, Hawkman, and the Atom. Really? Those are the three guys that are going to help, you know, beat back the Nazis? Miss America was with a different comic company back in the 40s. Otherwise, she would have been a member of the JSA. <laughs> Well, now this is a this is a, a 70s retelling though, remember? So it, this is a he could have picked a different way to introduce the characters. Now I have a question for you, Al. You said something just a moment ago about the Spear of Destiny being a Roy Thomas addition to the JSA mythos. Now, was the Spear of Destiny in the original DC Special 29? Yes, it was. You are correct. I did just check my copy though, and I guess they named it a Mystical Spear. So, hmm. well, but, where I was going with that is Paul Levitz wrote DC Special 29. Mm -hmm. So wouldn't Paul Levitz be responsible for introducing the Spirit Destiny then? Yes, you are correct. Okay. Well, I mean, but maybe there's a naming scheme here. Maybe, uh, you know, it was just a mystical spear and, and Roy's the one who turned it into the artifact we all know. I'm not sure. Either way, it's worth mentioning. Um, Al, I got a question for you. Do you remember? Now, obviously, the Spirit of Destiny was a major plot point in those first few issues of All-Star Squadron as a way of, uh, you know, justifying why the JSA and All-Star Squadron heroes couldn't get involved in Europe or Asia. Was it the, the Holy Grail that uh, Hirohito had and had a, a similar effect? Now, in that, the JSA members of the heroes actually became under the influence of Hitler or Hirohito, whichever occupied airspace they entered. That was the magic or superpower-based characters. Yes. Now, were Dr. Fate and the Spectre magic-based, did they fall under the, uh, I believe it was uh, Hirohito's influence in those issues? They were not able to cross that barrier as well. I think it was an All-Star Squadron number four, if I remember correctly. That was when Dr. Fate had the half-helmet, so he didn't have all his mystical energies. But I do remember clearly that why they were in the Sphere's uh, zone that he was chasing down Hawkman, and Hawkman was the first one to escape the zone's influence where Dr. Fate actually came back to his senses. So I know Dr. Fate was, and I do believe the Spectre was held off from actually crossing that zone as well. I'm pretty sure Green Lantern was too, wasn't he? Yeah, Green Lantern. Because his is magic-based. Yeah, you're yeah. right. But Superman was also affected, and he wasn't magic-based, and that was a comment in issue four that they were wondering why Superman was also affected. Wonder Woman was too, I believe. Yes. Well, but, but Superman was always... Uh, uh, vulnerable to magic, though. That's so true. That's true. That, that argument That's can be made. There you go. Although Superman but, and Wonder Woman are better served not being in that story at all. Oh, snap. No, they're not. You're wrong. But Come yeah, that, that's just that, that was just weird that uh, Dr. Fate is essentially uh, rendered useless against the spear. He can't attack Hitler directly, so they mm -hmm. have to focus their attacks against the, the Valkyries. But as we would have saw in Roy's earlier work on uh, All-Star Squadron, Fate would essentially became possessed by the power at that point or fallen under Hitler's influence. So interesting change there. Well, it could be that, and I don't remember it, but maybe there was a certain spell or incantation Hitler launched, which would have been after Pearl Harbor. And this clearly takes place before Pearl Harbor. So it could have been that. That's and true. I might just be magically retconning stuff for Roy, you know. 
Yeah, that I don't think that comes into place until All Star Squadron three or four. Honestly, as far as the uh, sphere of influence of the Spear of Destiny. All right, I've got a question for the group. Luscious naked butt shots aside. How do we feel about the Valkyries as the sort of evil super team, the the villains of this piece? Because I have weird problems with it. I I don't like them as the villains of this piece. And it's for a number of... Like, the fact that we've got a collection of superheroed men fighting these women, I don't know if that's feminist or misogynist, but one way or the other, it feels a little bit weird to me. I don't like the idea of this traditional kind of Viking female warrior, this very empowered thing, being lumped in and associated with the Nazi regime and and their iconography, especially, like, in part for the... I, I get the historical connection of them with the Germanic roots, but being a comic book lover, I associate these characters with the heroes of Marvel's Asgard, so this feels like a weird perversion of that, almost. I don't know. What do you guys think? Is there a weirdness to it, or is it just me, the fact that the Justice Society is fighting a group of women, scantily clad women, on horseback? I just think your awkwardness around attractive women is probably what's <laughs> holding you back, Ryan. Maybe that's it. Uh, I'd be actually curious to hear Gene Hendrick's thoughts on the portrayal, but I guess my two cents... Not knowing a a whole lot about the history around them, I'm curious of how much honor plays a role into kind of the the Valkyrie's legacy or history, mythos, as opposed to a might-makes-right warrior mentality. Are they honorable warriors, or is it a uh, they favor the strong? Obviously, Hitler is at the top of his game here uh, in Blitzkrieg just mowing over people. Would that be enough for him to gain favor among the Valkyries because his soldiers are just racking up a a massive death toll behind them in their wake? Probably my first exposure to anything similar to a Valkyrie probably would have been the uh, Frost Giant's daughter story from uh, Conan. And in that, she is uh, less than admirable. So maybe that's tainting a little bit of my perception around Valkyries. Uh, that being the kind of the, the first impression of a Valkyrie-like character. So uh, it doesn't bother me, I guess. And obviously, uh, Gudra it goes on to be a, kind of a mainstay in the young All-Stars as a villain. Al, what do you think? I thought it made a certain amount of sense just because they are the entities that take the souls of departed warriors to Valhalla. And it just kind of made sense that they would be involved in a battle, especially one this epic. So I really didn't have any reservations or think of it that way. Uh, I thought it made perfect sense to me, honestly. For me, I, I never really – I didn't think of them as evil necessarily. I figured they were under the influence of Hitler's staff, you know, Spear of Destiny thing. It's kind of what I figured necessarily because I've always kind of thought of them as, you know, they take warriors to Valhalla and they're not necessarily good or evil. And so them being under the influence of evil could happen. Now, once you've said this, I went back and relooked at these pages and you make an interesting point as far as them being worthy of being the foes, there is only one panel where they even really do anything. And that is, the, the ironically, the butt shot panel, where she blasts Dr. Fate. That's about the only panel where they do anything worthwhile. They do sort of knock the Flash with a wing in another panel. But other than that, the Valkyries don't actually do anything except the JSA are like, oh, no, we're getting our butts handed to us. But they're not really, if you pay attention to the fight. So maybe they're not worthy of being the villains. But as far as the whole misogynist thing going on there... Paul might have had some issues. I don't know, but I didn't see it that way. <laughs> Shag, kind of going off of yours, though, being under the Spirit Destiny's influence, that's kind of crossing the streams a bit uh, from a religious aspect. I mean, you have True. two different ideologies there, so why would they fall victim of a 
the power of a Christianity relic when they would be the kind of their separate entity. I guess if we needed some kind of heavy hitter bad guys for other than like regular Nazi soldiers, I I would have rather seen something a little bit like the murder machine or something more traditionally demonic looking. Well, I think uh, history has shown that Hitler was into the occult. Mm -hmm. And uh, even Gudra here says we strike at the foes of the fatherland. And maybe they just recognize that Hitler is the leader of the fatherland at this point. So they, whether they're under the influence of the spirit uh, or not, they're going to do Hitler's bidding. So I think, uh, you know, in real life, he was researching the occult. So that's probably something he looked into in real life. Gratuitous butt shots. I think that really sums it up, buddy. That's right. If we didn't have that, we never would have had that panel, and that really makes it all the worthwhile. Shag, just going before we leave this section, going back to what you were saying about Dr. Fate, and yeah, we saw Bear has done the, the secret origin of Dr. Fate. He did the secret origin of Our Man. He did the secret origin of Sandman. You know, this was sort of the culmination of his work on the series, too. Getting back to Fate's first panel. Mm-hmm. It's got all this sort of psychedelic, I think you mentioned before we, we started talking on the Steve Ditko effect. He's trying to incorporate a lot of that weirdness. But there's something, even though he's not standing that way, there's something weirdly symmetrical about the shape of Dr. Fate that he doesn't seem like he's embodying the same space. This seems like not a real mystical magic realm, but something that would be on a college freshman's dorm room wall. Just like this kind of weird posters and stuff like that, like something like an album cover. So so you're sort of saying, like I said, where Bear's trying, but it's just not quite coming together? Yeah, it's just there doesn't seem to be anything organic about the magic or, the, or these panels. Well, there's the ghostly scromping. <laughs> there is that. There is that. And I love Michael Bear. I truly do. It's just I'm seeing this now through a, a lens of a 30, you know, something years of comic reading. And that's where my struggles started to come from. Yeah. Uh, you also mentioned the guys, they're, they're underhanded. They need some backup. So who are they going to get? Sandman, the Atom, and Hawkman. Okay, Hawkman is pretty tough. But Sandman and Atom aren't the heavy hitters that Green Lantern is. But uh, they, they come up, well, I like seeing them fighting amongst the rank-and-file British soldiers, or, or British uh, Navy men. It's really cool. I, I do. I really like these two pages. I think Kyle pointed out pages 19 and 20. The art on these pages looks terrific. I'm not even sure why he called up the Spectre, you know, really, at this point. Those three guys should have been able to handle it. Any last thoughts on this first half of the book? I think it's uh, strong. Yeah, I agree. I Pretty strong, solid uh, beginning. Uh, we'll probably have a, a little different <laughs> opinion of the back half, but uh, definitely starts <laughs> definitely starts out strong and uh, not as solid as the original telling in uh, DC Special Number Twenty Nine. Uh, we'll get into that more later, but uh, better with Batman. <laughs> <laughs> Screw Batman! All that matters is Superman. <laughs> Fellas, you're jumping the gun. Give us some. I, I know that, but uh, considering uh, everything else that's that's coming down the the pipe, if uh, it would have continued on this pace, I, I would have a lot more positive things to say about the the book as a whole. Because uh, right now, pretty uh, satisfactory and uh, enjoyable read. And on that very ominous note, folks, we are going to jump to another commercial break, but don't go far because when we come back, more of the secret origin of the Justice Society of America. Hi. I'm Kyle Benning, and I love comics. In fact, I love them so much that I ramble on about them on a number of podcasts, all on one feed, found under the King Size Comics Giant Size Fun banner. I talk about comics with extra page counts, like Treasury Comics, Prestige Format Books, 
DC's Dollar Comics, Marvel's Giant Size Specials and King Size Daniels, and much, much more. I also love to talk about DC's Crisis on Multiple Earth crossovers, free comics from Special Promos, Free Comic Book Day, Star Wars, My Life as a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles fan, random comic book back issues, and many other elements of geek culture that happen to strike my fancy. There's new content usually dropping at least once a week, and it's all found on one feed. You can subscribe via iTunes. Just search for King Size Comics Giant Size Fun in the iTunes Store or podcast app on your iPhone. Otherwise, you can follow the podcast at the King Size Comics Giant Size Fun blog headquarters, available at www.kingsizecomicsgiantsizefun.blogspot.com. That's all one word, King Size Comics Giant Size Fun.blogspot.com. Or follow on Facebook by simply searching for King Size Comics Giant Size Fun. So for snappy review and discussions on comics, new and old, usually done from the front seat of my car or my lunch break at work, check out King Size Comics Giant Size Fun. Shag, will you tell us the next part of the story? When we last left our heroes, the Spectre had burst onto the scene. So Dr. Fate is in absolute awe of the Spectre. He goes on to explain to his comrades that they need the Spectre's power since Hitler is expanding his operations. We're then given a glimpse of Hitler himself ordering a prototype long-range bomber plane. Remember that, folks. That's going to be important later. He orders this long-range bomber plane to launch and head for Washington, D.C. In all of his rage and fury, as if he was in a bunker with a subtitled meme movie, Hitler orders the American capital to be obliterated. Next, we see an enormously sized specter, and we're talking larger than a full-size Godzilla here, smashing the Nazi fleet like a child bats around toy boats in a bathtub. After destroying the entire Nazi fleet and killing all the soldiers, Spectre then shrinks in size so he may approach his fellow masked men in their same size. He agrees to join our heroes on their quest to serve the cause of life, even though he just slaughtered a bunch of guys. With the Nazi fleet destroyed and the Valkyries vanished, our heroes regroup. And for the very first time, we have the assemblage of the greatest heroes of the Golden Age. Those stars of All-Star Comics number three, Green Lantern, Flash, Hawkman, Hourman, Sandman, Adam, Spectre, and Doctor Fate though we don't get a totally boss panel of them all hanging out together. After a brief introduction and an exchange of pleasantries, the heroes set out to stop the long-range super bomber, see, I told you that'd be important, before it reaches Washington, D.C. They quickly catch up with a Nazi plane, who is being flown uh, with an honor guard of Valkyrie warrior women upon winged horses, who now I know are not wearing underwear. Without warning, the Valkyries of Valhalla somehow warp space, and they're all transported to the skies of Washington, D.C., Several of the heroes then begin to doubt their ability to win this battle. They, they have a, a, a sense of dread and defeat. Given the imminent danger to the nation's capital and the godlike powers at work, they begin to lose hope. Dr. Fate senses that the Valkyries' magical influence is at play here, heightening their sense of fear. So Fate bolsters the hero's courage with patriotic and inspirational visions. We see the American flag, Revolutionary War symbology, the Lincoln Memorial, soldiers who gave their lives for our country. These images give our heroes the ammunition they need to regain their willpower. In fact, Green Lantern uses his renewed willpower to destroy the long-range bomber. The force of the explosion is so powerful, it knocks Green Lantern unconscious. And as the Emerald Knight falls, so do his constructs, and his comrades-in-arms plummet to the lawn of the White House. With the Valkyrie mission failed, they vanish, all except for the Valkyrie leader, Gunda, by the way, who's not wearing underwear. Both Gunda and the mighty might called the Atom have snuck into the White House for very different reasons. Gudra. Gudra bursts into the bedroom of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, 
And again, now that I know she's not wearing underwear, this might have been a whole different type of story. <laughs> she holds aloft her magical spear, intent on murdering the president of the United States. The atom bursts in, leaping heroically through the air, protecting the president. The murderous blow intended for Roosevelt is instead received by the atom. Now, since the president was the intended victim, the atom isn't actually killed. Something about the magic hoochie watcher that does that. He's only injured and knocked unconscious. With no other opposition, Gunther raises her spear again, and this time her aim is true, and the president of the United States is murdered by a Nazi agent within the walls of the White House. The rest of our heroes burst in. With a powerful blow, Dr. Faye blasts Gunther across the room, and she flees and simply vanishes. Sadly, our heroes find the 32nd president of the United States lying dead on the floor. Dr. Fate says, The nation's leader struck down in the hour of America's greatest peril, and beyond all reach, for even I have never been able to bring a man back from the far side of death. The specter answers, Nor have I, Dr. Fate, and yet I must try! And with that, the specter vanishes from the White House, traveling to that twilight land where mortal men may only tread but once. We see the specter traversing bizarre, incomprehensible dimensions, finally, at the last moment, succeeding in piercing the veil. All right. Shag, what'd you think? I like this part. Um, this part's quite good. The battle in the air is good. Uh, now, I'm glad they explained that the Valkyries were in heightening their fear because the, everyone's sense of dread and giving up was a little bit, I don't want to say ham-fisted, but at one point you're kind of like, huh, that's unusual. But it, it is also kind of nice to acknowledge that, you know, Sandman sitting there while they're, fl- you know, fighting against flying warrior women with magical spears on horses going, yeah, I'm not sure what my gas gun's really going to do here. <laughs> it's a fair point. I do wish we had gotten a, sort of a hero panel of the team together. The first yeah. time all eight of them were together or I, I, there's even this little tiny little panel of everyone standing there. I tried to <laughs> I tried to match up to see if they were all standing in the order that they were around the table and it almost works. There's a couple of exceptions, but it almost works that they're in the same order as the table from All-Star Comics number three. But not quite. Overall, I enjoyed this section. I, I think the second section is probably the strongest, but I think the story does continue well here uh, up to a point. Kyle, what do you think? Uh few uh, missteps here, I guess. Uh, starting off with the uh, the Spectre's entrance. Just wonder why that panel is so empty. It kind of more of the magic, trippy, psychedelic. You had this huge, what is it, probably two-thirds uh, of a page splash. Mm-hmm. And the Spectre takes up, from a, a width standpoint, maybe 20%, maybe 30%. I mean, why not just fill that panel out uh, with all the uh, Spectre's glory? But then uh, the bottom third is probably some of the, the strongest art in the book. I, I really enjoy the panel there where uh, Alan Scott's making the, the green willpower bubble around his uh, three teammates. Obviously, that's something we see uh, Hal Jordan use in space quite a bit. Neat to see uh, Alan Scott do it here. Page 23, we get some size-changing Spectre. Always love that. You just got to love some size-changing Spectre wiping that, out uh, Nazi ships. That last panel is like a Michael Bay dream. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he, he wants to direct that panel. Yeah. <laughs> I think he did. <laughs> he he wants to direct that panel using as much footage from previous movies as possible. <laughs> I have to wonder what the hell is going on with Roy Thomas's dialogue here on the bottom of page 25. Dr. Fate swoops in. This is the first time we've really had any breathing moment of the story since all the heroes have kind of been united. And uh, he comes in and says, oh, and I am called Dr. Fate. And Adam's response is, I can see why, assuming you're the guy who plucked us up off the East Coast and plopped us down here in Mary Oldie, or Mary Old. His name is Dr. Fate, not Dr. Transport. (laughs) Why is, I can see why, your response. Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah, Fate, uh, Intercontinental Transport. Yeah, (laughs) whatever. (laughs) 
Uh, like Shag mentioned, I was uh, a little bothered by how weak the the resolve the of the the heroes were. I mean, they're supposed to be the the best America has to offer. You know, the best of the greatest uh, generation America's ever known, and they uh, kind of fold or are willing to fold uh, fairly easily and need uh, you know that that little patriotic pep talk that. Uh, it's. I guess it's nice to invoke some Amer- more kind of American patriotic iconography, but at the expense of the the characters' resolve. Uh, not a big fan of that. I liked. So. The, uh, sorry, I liked the inclusion of the patriotic symbiology. As you were basically the same as you. I don't like the fact that the characters had to be in this weakened, corrupted state to have it. But I, we we, we think of these super teams having to deal with threats that are on global, even galactic scales. So you kind of have to be reminded, okay, they're called Justice Society of America for a reason. And what was it about the spirit of America at this time? So I like that we are getting that connection, that Roy is actually making the effort to remind us that these were really heroes that were the symbol of the American spirit in 1940. Was there another way he could have gone about that? Perhaps. But uh, I, I like what he did, so. I like the little heads all mm-hmm. going down, the eight heads across the patriotic panels. That's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the middle. That, that's a neat touch. Kind of breaks up uh, the monotony a little bit. And then uh, I guess kind of my last note uh, on this section. It's nice to see Al Pratt's sacrifice kind of carried over from that DC special. Unfortunately, in this one, it's doesn't really matter it's all kind of in vain yeah and so it's uh that really kind of undercuts what was a, a great moment in that original telling of the secret origin of the jsa yeah. okay so thank you so in the that's what was going to be my question to you guys because again i haven't read the dc special in years i didn't remember any of this afterlife in, in roosevelt dying stuff so that's happen. not it okay so al sacrifice al takes the hit mm-hmm. for for roosevelt and then everyone stops gunda yes yeah, superman superman specifically captures her Basically oh, grabs guy. her as soon as Al stops, steps in front of Gudra. He takes the hit, and then that gives Superman enough time to take her out of the fight, which means his sacrifice, like the one really good important thing that the Atom actually did in his career meant something. And in this case, uh, not so much. Well, it sounds like instead of focusing on the, the Atom's sacrifice, it sounds like what Roy's trying to say here is that if you take Superman out of the equation – Roosevelt's going to die. So I think that's maybe Roy flipping a little bit of a bird maybe. saying you take Superman out of the Golden Age boys and bad things happen. Maybe. Hmm. That's just something I hadn't considered. Al, what did you think? We haven't heard from you. Uh, the Spectre is my least favorite JSA member, and this issue Bastard. shows why. Just because – did we lose somebody there? No, I called you a bastard. Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, just because <laughs> he he makes the other heroes unnecessary or obsolete. You see this long struggle for, you know, 20-some pages, and then the Spectre shows up, and he's breaking battleships in half with his hands, and he's just way too powerful for the team. Well, my counter to that, I love the Spectre. He's one of my favorite characters, especially the Golden Age take on him where he just tears people in from them when they're awful is he is totally reactionary. So yes, he is this great, super powerful force, but something bad has to happen before he can get involved. So the whole kind of, obviously him being kind of an extension of the wrath of God is he is not a preventative threat. He still has to honor the free will and hope that uh, the person who has evil in their heart changes their way before they go through with the deed. And if they don't, that's when he comes in. So 
now we're starting to see this evil on an epic level, and only then is he able to kind of tap into his full bag of tricks. That's my now, take on it. Now, they, when was that established? I mean, was he able to grow full size and smash battleships in the Golden Age, or did that come oh, yeah. about later in oh, yeah. the 60s oh, yeah. and 70s? Very, no, very early, he had the size changing. Okay. Uh, they missed a great opportunity. If you remember this, not to keep rehashing the 77 story, but that iconic panel where Superman flies up and smashes the super bomber, and then he ca- and then in the next page he catches the bomb that falls from the plane. I think this story would have been better. And and Bear, I see a lot of this in his stories where he has these pages with several different panels. You're talking maybe 12, 10 or 12 panels, and everything's real small. I think they could have been better served if they just had one full-page panel of Green Lantern smashing that plane. Just because that is such an iconic image from the old issue, I thought that would have been a nice touch in this one. Well, that's Roy Thomas writing. <laughs> I don't think he, I think he would have had a stroke if you asked him to write a full-page splash image or something. Let me ask you guys an opinion. I looked up that Professor Stolfin because he appears in both stories, and I just wanted to see if he was based upon anybody. And everything that kept pulling up was a Stolfin burger. Yes, who, part yeah. of the Valkyrie. Yes, yeah. and I was wondering if you thought boss. that Levitt's. Uh, might have used a shortened version of that name because he was one of the conspirators that tried to assassinate Hitler, but that was also Project Valkyrie, yes. better known as that Tom Cruise movie for you people, Ugh. the younger <laughs> But my, uh, my research turned up the same thing. Do you think that Levitz in the 70s, because of the Project Valkyrie or Operation Valkyrie, used a shortened version of that name for this story? Were the details of the the plot to kill Hitler known in the 70s? I don't know enough about that part of history, but... Uh, that's a valid point. That's a good uh, question. Yeah. And I actually believe it was two brothers that were part of that, and then they had another brother who was an actual professor, I think, of law, hmm. that was uh, also pretty vocal about his opposition to Hitler. But uh, If it, it wasn't intentional, it, it was a big coincidence. It, yes. It might have it's been It's also too big. a very German name, mm-hmm. so I, the fact that it's a shortened version of that... I. Tough to say. That would be an interesting thing for Al. I know you love Alter Ego. I'd be curious to see if that's ever been tackled in at any point, or maybe you could write into Roy and see if him and uh, Paul can touch on that in an upcoming issue of Alter Ego. I did uh, look on the All-Star Companion Volume 4, which covers this issue of Secret Origins, and they don't mention anything like that. But Roy Thomas does state that he was very proud of this part of the story, where he thought that was one of his most creative things, where... How he, well, I don't want to jump ahead to the last part of the story, but how he had the Spectre travel to the great beyond and to... Really? Do, well, that, Roy, I love a lot of your work. And, man, but this is, that ain't uh, it, buddy. <laughs> but he was proud of that section. So We'll be getting to that. We do spend a big chunk of comic real estate with that, and I, I think that because of that finale, we have to cram a whole lot more and... And Michael Bear has to cram a whole lot more, which, like you said, we don't get a good hero shot of the character's first meeting. We sort of have to rely on that first splash page after the cover, as there's. Um, I do, again, like on page 31 on the top, when the Spectre says he will try to retrieve it, and we get have a lot of the characters, but again... You got uh, 25% of the pages in this one panel, and the characters are tiny. They're... Maybe this was a stylistic decision, like he he wanted to show the scope of how big the stakes were, of how like how tiny they were in this grand scheme of this war by making them look smaller, but I don't know if it's maybe it was just because it's easier to draw smaller characters. It's, I think he's just trying to fit too much on the page. That could be it too. 
And um, what Al was going on a, a moment ago about in the original version, how Superman stops the bomber and then even catches the last bomb. Did that bomb take Superman out of the equation for a bit or not? No, he uh, caught it before it hit the ground. Then he went into the White House to yeah, save FDR. One page later, he's in the White House saving the president. So, well, I think that's an, could be potentially another either another flipping the bird to Golden Age Superman being gone because you know Superman stops the bomber and catches the bomb. Where here it actually knocks Green Lantern out. So it's either another flipping the bird saying you know classic Superman wouldn't have that wouldn't happen to Superman, or uh, Roy just saw an opportunity where he needed to take Green Lantern off the page. To explain why Adam was the one who was in there saving the day. Green Lantern gets taken out in the old story anyways. I think it was just oh. he used up all his willpower and then he passes out. And that's when the Adam and the other heroes fall to the ground. That's what enables Adam to get into the White House to try to save FDR. Oh, OK. All right, folks. We are going to jump to another promotional break, but we'll be back in a second with more of the secret origin of the Justice Society of America. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast, a new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue, in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter, Batman, Doctor Fate, Black Canary, Fire, Ice, Maxwell Lord, Oberon, Captain Marvel, Rocket Red, Captain Adam, Mister Miracle, Guy Gardner, Booster Gold, Blue Beetle, Nort, and many, many more. Justice League International, blah ha ha podcast. Coming March 2016 as part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? All right. The Spectre goes to the great beyond he once visited the night his earthly host Jim Corrigan was murdered. He observes that the hereafter appears different to every soul depending on his or her beliefs. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, for instance, did not believe in Valhalla and Valkyries because he lived in the 20th century, not the 9th. So the land where the specter finds FDR resembles a more contemporary Judeo-Christian purgatory, and he finds the president's soul, walking, it should be noted, with the endless other souls toward their final destination. The specter demands an audience with the heavenly power that sent him back to Earth as an instrument of divine justice. The voice asks why he has come. Specter tells him he wants to bring FDR back to life. God basically tells him no and get back to your job. They argue. <laughs> they argue. They both raise their voices. Things get heated. And finally, the specter dares to lash out at God with the power of every soul that has ever been untimely killed. It does not hurt God, nor does it cause him to change his mind. The fire of God's response burns the specter, who falls to his knees weeping. But his tears are not for his own pain. God realizes that the specter, a ghost sent to earth to wage war on the evil in men's souls, cries for the coming death and destruction that will fall on mankind without Roosevelt's leadership during the war. God is moved by this unprecedented display of humanity from his agent. He shows the Spectre a vision of the future of America, the attack on Pearl Harbor, the countless sacrifices made in the war with Germany, Japan, and Italy, the fear of the Cold War that follows, and ultimately the fate of President Roosevelt, who would not live to see the end of the war, even if he was spared this day. 
At last, the voice grants the specter's request and sends the ghost and the president back to Earth, with no memory of what they experienced in the afterlife. Back in the Oval Office, FDR thanks the Mystery Men for saving him, especially the Atom, who is recovering just fine from the Valkyrie's blast. The president tells the heroes they would make a great battalion for his army. The heroes agree to all meet again and decide how they should proceed as one unit, not as a battalion, for they are not soldiers. They fight for the cause of justice, which they will do together as the Justice Society of America. Alright. Al, what did you think of the finale? I kind of have an idea, but let us know. Um, <clears throat> too much hocus pocus for me as far as uh, the supernatural. I mean, I, I understand the Spectre's powers and everything like that. It's my least favorite part of the whole origin, if you uh, split it out into the four parts. That's all I have to say. Alright. Shag, what do you think? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, the the whole thing with the Spectre going to the afterlife was just blarg. I couldn't stand that part. I just I I abhorred it. I, I'm glad to hear it was not in the original version. I, I, the way God spoke was kind of cool artistically. The way the, the with the circles and the red writing and everything that was nice. But I just wanted to get back to the story, and that's wrapped up in like two pages. It's it's you know again mostly Spectre in the afterlife having an argument with his boss and then getting written up. <laughs> Kyle, what did you think? Uh, well, I guess overall, you know, kind of echo the same sentiments of uh, Al and Shag that uh, you spend six pages of this 38-page story, essentially the, the specter yelling in purgatory. And, uh, you know, for the secret origin of the JSA, it seems like a, a lot of real estate to waste. I mean, this is definitely the, the major divergence outside of the absence of a, a couple key characters. But this is the major divergence from the, the 70s version, and uh, it just does not hold up on, on the same level as that original take. Uh, some of the specifics, I guess. There's elements of this art that looks pretty fantastic during this whole trippy scene. I mean, I do like a lot of panels of uh, Bear's take on the Spectre. There's some other ones that are pretty wonky. Page 32 has got a lot of wonkiness going on. We see kind of a main Spectre figure traversing through this trippy dimension while we have Serpent Spectre in the background burping. And then uh, <laughs> the uh, middle panel, I guess it's uh, good to know that uh, Castle Grayskull and Eternia are actually located in uh, Purgatory. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, who knew that uh, FDR was uh, the time trapper? Oh, jeez. <laughs> and uh, one of many time trappers, apparently. <laughs> you see uh, that uh, endless chain of departing souls in Golden Age stories as well. That was also an All-Star Comics one. Yeah, some, some of the uh, the panels are, are neat. Uh, I'm curious how much of this is actually uh, Bayer's line work versus what was done by the colorists with all the red squiggles and stuff. Probably, given that this came out in the, the late 80s, this was probably all original line work done by him that was colored, whereas nowadays, essentially just the figure work would have been done by him and everything else would have been filled in by the colorists. So just kind of a neat contrast to look at uh, how this page would have been created then versus now. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. I kind of assumed that most of these lines would have been done just by the colorist. But, I mean, <laughs> given how much line work he does on the rest of the story, why wouldn't he have drawn all of these circles himself? I guess at the end, you know, they did try and reconcile Adam's sacrifice by saying he still sacrificed himself, but it's marginalized considerably. I guess I will take the minority opinion in that I like the idea of this finale. 
even though I don't like the change that that the president had to die because it negates the Adam sacrifice, which I think is one of the best parts of the original story in DC Special 29. The fact that Adam, who nobody would put any expectations on, he is the most forgettable, smallest member of the team, and he's the one who takes a bullet for the president, essentially. And in this case, it doesn't really matter. But I like this moment when the Spectre, when all of a sudden all of the chaos of this war that has now spanned two different continents with all of this crazy, when it it essentially turns into a conversation with a man arguing with God to save a life. I like that idea, but I think it's a little bit misplaced. Because functionally, it's basically making it sound like Franklin Delano Roosevelt is the most important person in the 20th century. Like, if he died there, if he wasn't there during World War II, humanity would have just gone to the crap. Like, everything everything about our life would have been over. Like, the Nazis would have won, chaos would have just ruled the streets. Like, it, this is putting a lot of stake on the shoulders of this one president. And I, it seems a little bit unfair, it seems a little bit just maybe misplaced, I, I, I don't know. But I do like the idea of this spirit of vengeance, this agent of God, challenging God and talking to God like in this manner and being fed up and saying and wanting to spare a life. But I just think like when you're telling this story in a war story, why isn't he asking the question that we would all be asking, which is why why war? Why do thousands or millions of people have to die in in things like this? What is the cause? What did you make us for? And I love that the Spectre goes to the afterlife. I love that he shouts at God and he gets pimp-slapped for it. But I just think the the questions, the reason he's there is a little bit misplaced. I, I mean, I don't have a problem with this grand epic battle story ending with a few pages of just this, this conversation. I like this as the wrap-up. I just don't like what they're talking about or the reason for it, if that makes sense. I'll kind of agree with that and piggyback on it a little bit that I don't mind as much as uh, I don't mind the scenario, I guess, of the the specter going to God and questioning him or appealing to him. Uh, That's actually a neat aspect, and there are some neat elements of it in the art. But I don't really like you. uh, I I don't like the context of the situation. I think I would actually liked it placed further back in the story and been more of like a a situation of the specter going to God essentially asking for the blessing to tap into that power and use it as a uh, preventative nature. I, I talked about earlier about uh, the Spectre's shtick being that he's purely a reactionary mm-hmm. force or being this spirit of vengeance. What if he goes and has this conversation with God earlier on in the middle of the story? It seems like the JSA is overwhelmed and says, look, I need to tap into this power and just wipe these people out before they create this evil act instead of after. I think that could have been an interesting take on the Spectre's dynamic. Yeah, and then, yeah, have something like that. Essentially punishing the the villain before the crime instead Mm -hmm. of after. And you could have had the Spectre be the one who destroys the German bomber plane instead of Superman and who catches the bomb as it falls. Yeah. What do you guys think about that take? The Spectre-God interaction is a good story. It's just I don't think it's a good JSA story. Yeah, it's kind of my position on it. I mean, you guys come up with a nice hypothetical what if, but I mean, the story is what it is, and it's. Right. I think Al summed it up. What do you think of the final splash page, the other hero shot that we get of the team assembled? 
I was actually just staring at that. I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, I like it. I think it's quite good. I like. I think Doctor Fate looks exceptionally good. Um, oh goodness, this is going to be another one of those. The more I look at it, the less I like it. Oh no, darn it! All right, I'm just going to look at it casually then. Uh, I like the the ghostly image of Spectre in the background naming the team. I like seeing all the characters. You know, Hawkman. Even though he's in the background, you get to see him in flight, which is where you should see him. A casual glance, it's a very nice image. And again, I think uh, Doctor Fate looks pretty on model, and I refuse to look at it in any more detail. Al, what do you think? My book is already back in the plastic bag. However, I did look at that panel, and it looked very good. The only thing I noticed was the Spectre's arm cuts in front of a Hawkman, mm-hmm. where I thought maybe he would be in the background more, but that's just nitpicking. So it looks like a very nice panel. Kyle, what do you think? I think it's pretty solid. I think it's the best of the kind of the, the three splash or cover images uh, between the, the first opening page, the original cover, and then this. I think this is probably the, the strongest of the three. The only issue I really have at it, as I stare at it more closely, is the Sandman's left arm that looks like it only comes down to his waistline when it should come down about halfway between his waistline and his knee. That's about it. That sticks out to me as bad. Otherwise, it's it's pretty solid. Yes, I, w- I would like Hawkman's wing cutting in front of the, the Spectre's arm there, but other than that, it's a pretty solid image. Hey, let's talk about the Superman-Batman controversy. <laughs> okay. Well, hold on. Let's look. What does Ryan think of the last page? I don't like it. Shag, I, th- <laughs> I think you're wrong. I think Dr. Fate does not look good in that last page. I think he looks just like the action figure. I never had that action figure. What, what's I your issue that's... with Dr. Fate specifically? Is that his left hand looks too small? Um, like it's He's holding up his cape. Like I think he's like genuflecting or something. I, I don't know. His neck looks really fat. Have you ever had to wash anything yellow? It stains pretty easily. And it's hard to get that out, especially a 1940s washing machine. I want the White House had very filthy floors. He didn't want it to drag. I want him to tuck his thumb uh, thumb in and just say, death to false metal. Just start headbanging. <laughs> okay. I know you guys have been chapping at the bit to get to this. So, the major difference in this story than the original version from DC 29 is the absence of Superman and Batman. Al, why is this story better with Superman and Batman in it? I just think the JSA is better with Superman and Batman. If I think it was Shag's introduction, he talks about falling in love with the 1970s All-Star Comics issues. That is a legacy book. It does bring you Power Girl. It does bring you The Huntress. Without Superman and Batman, you do not get those stories. You do not get the All-Star Squad, the great All-Star Squadron issues with even into the 30s where Superman battles Captain Marvel. You don't get the miniseries America versus the JSA. You don't get any of that without Batman in there. So I just don't understand how it's better without Superman because uh, so much of the 80s or 70s and 80s stories are built on Superman and Batman. I don't, I don't agree. They're built around Huntress and Power Girl. Now, admittedly, yes, they're legacy characters, and you have to tie them back there. But if you just look at them as characters on their own, Superman and Batman don't play a major role in those stories up until the point where Batman becomes a villain. I, I don't think they're that critical to the stories. I, I enjoyed the stories without them more. And then when you get to All-Star Squadron, the best All-Star Squadron issues are without Superman. Maybe in the original 40s, they had a place in there, sure. But once you get to the 80s, the stories highlight the lesser-known characters. And that's that's their vehicle, is the lesser-known characters. And, and it's better without Superman and Batman getting in the way, quite honestly. Wow. They hog the spotlight when it's unnecessary. I'd rather see, uh, you know, Sandman step up and save the day or our man. I don't need to see Superman do it. Let's see the other guys do it. 
Okay, Shag, when you say that, when you say the 80 stories are better uh, without Superman and Batman in there, and you Mm -hmm. said specifically Superman, and the lesser characters get highlighted, what lesser characters specifically, and what series are you talking about specifically in the 80s? Well, All-Star Squadron was really my first touchstone of where I collected them on an ongoing basis. So so which one of those characters, or group of characters, do you feel are better served by Superman not being a regular in that book? Green Lantern, when he's around. Hawkman. Um, now, most of All-Star Squadron, you're right, you're going to get the, the non-JSA characters. You're going to get Exactly, the, the that's man. my point. I, I, I knew so where you are going. Yeah. When he's around, so that same argument could be used. You're, you're comparing a book that very rarely uses the majority of these characters that are in this book outside of Al Pratt. Well, jump forward to the great you know, uh, Mike Parabek JSA series with the post-crisis origins of, of no Superman and Batman in that series. The team's phenomenal. Looking at the flashback stories where you get the uh, – whether it be Robinson's JSA where they would do flashbacks to the 40 stories or even the, those miniseries that were produced without the Superman and Batman in, as part of the team. I love it. I love that area. I, I, whenever I read a JSA story and Superman and Batman are in it, they're, they're in my way. I'm going to maybe split the difference or maybe sort of compromise where I like the I like the idea of the Golden Age Superman and Batman working alongside some of these characters, but not necessarily on a team. And this is a weird collection of these eight characters on the team. I'm not sure if they really work going forward after this. And, and Al talked about this a little bit with the inclusion of the Spectre. Some of these characters, like Golden Age Superman and like Spectre, seem like they really can only come into play in these group on big crisis-level stories, like a story like this, where, where the team had to come together to stop the, the Hitler or to stop the death of the president, something huge and catastrophic. When it would come to something like the day-to-day adventures of this team, I would want something a little bit... I, then, then I don't need Superman and Batman mixing it up with these guys, and I don't need the specter there. I would rather have somebody like Wildcat or Dr. Midnight palling around with Flash and Green Lantern and Our Man and Hawkman. I don't have a problem with Superman and Batman being part of this origin story to bring the team together, but I find with them being the sort of honorary members, I don't need them to be part of the team, per se. And see, that's really my take on it, I guess, is uh, I don't think they're an essential part of the ongoing day-to-day stories of the team, but I think they play an essential role in the origin of the team. I mean, they're the two biggest names of the DC Universe, but compared to these characters, they're also the two primary or first ones to come around chronologically i mean superman starts the dc superhero universe batman's really not that far behind he's ahead of all these other heroes and that bugs me that you have the premiere of a superhero team that was inspired by those two heroes and they don't play any part of the origin i'm a superman fan he's my favorite character so that bugs me more when i see how uh, i think he needs to be a tentpole the flagship character of DC Comics and certainly hasn't been for the last 15 years. So I'm sure I'm bringing a little bit more of that retroactive bias when I'm looking back at that. That, that bugs me now. <laughs> he's not included in this story from the 80s as well. Oh, he's already getting marginalized then. And I think, well, I think me, part let, of the trouble with that, I think, has to do with, and I mentioned this when I was going through the publication history, is just the fact that the Justice Society's origin was not told for almost 40 years after these characters. Like, for the longest time, like we just knew that the Justice Society were these eight members, originally these eight members, I mean, yeah, Superman and Batman, they were honorary members, but they weren't part of that group shot. We think of the team's founding of those eight guys. That's our first image of the team. And we forget that that had nothing to do with their origin. Their origin wasn't told until the 70s. 
So I think what? that I think that plays a little bit into the the disconnect of do these guys belong with the origin or not. Well, then, you, you, just uh, on top- on, you just touched on something I was about to hit on, Ryan, which is, uh, and I'm going to I'm going to let the 1940s actually come to my defense, which is not just that cover, Ryan. It's pretty much the majority of the JSA covers for All Star Comics don't feature Superman and Batman because the publication mindset was Superman and Matt, Batman already have their own books, so we're not going to put them on the cover of the All Star Comics. And, name, and it, name the two most iconic All Star Comics covers. The which, first one, which is the around the table, right? Yep. What's the second one? Then some other the heroes running through Washington D.C. The heroes running through Washington D.C. with the American flag and the Justice Society of America banner. Is Superman in that one? Okay, yes, he is. It's all a matter of timing, like we said, and Ryan even uh, said that the Justice League of America issue one ninety five to one ninety seven is one of his favorite Justice League stories of all time, and a big part of that front and center was the Earth Two Superman. It's just when we started liking the comic books, and I'm older than I believe you three, all of you three. So put I, together, buddy. Well, not that old. <laughs> I, I walk like it, but I'm not really that old. <laughs> But in the 70s with All-Star Comics and then the Justice League, Justice Society crossovers, Superman was front and present during a lot of those adventures. Even Earth 2 Batman was present in some of those uh, crossovers. So just that's when I started to enjoy it. So they have always been a big part of the JSA for me. Now, I love Earth 2 Superman. Don't be mistaken. I think Earth 2 Superman is fantastic. I love when he would appear. But I sort of see it more like what Ryan said. Rather than him being a member of the team – a crisis is so big that the JSA teams up with Earth 2 Superman. I'm fine with that concept. I so just you, don't you don't consider the death of the president, which apparently is six of the last ten pages of the story say, is the most important person in the 20th century. That's not a big enough crisis to warrant Superman okay, showing let, up. <laughs> Correct? Okay, this is post-crisis. Earth 2 Superman doesn't exist at all at this point. <laughs> if so Superman yes, was present. The story, the story is weaker because of it. If Superman was present and FDR died... He would just fly around the Earth in reverse fashion and go backwards in time. Okay, nope, I, I not, not at this point. Earth 2 Superman cannot fly at this point. Okay, I would argue that the story is not weaker because the lack of Superman from Earth 2. I would say the story took a wrong turn, uh, and, and that was probably Roy's doing because he missed Earth 2 Superman. I think the story, the story took a wrong turn because Earth 2 Superman wasn't there to make no, it better. Because Roy Thomas wrote the story without – what I'm saying is the story should have ended with Al taking the hit, right? Or I'm not – well, not our Al, but Al Pratt <laughs> taking the hit and then the rest of the JSA comes in and stops you know, penniless Valkyrie. And that should have been the end of it rather than the whole going to the afterlife stuff. Can I read a little paragraph out of the All-Star Companion? And this no. does this does prove Shag right, and I had to say that for the third oh, time. Ow. Wow. Could you just put that on a loop, Ryan, and just keep playing that? But Please it does say, it. after this issue, it was abruptly determined that at DC, and Roy still vehemently disagrees with both the decision itself and the way the matter was handled, that there should be no more Golden Age tales and secret origin. Although several more had been plotted in pencil, uh, Roy had always considered the movie to be been motivated by office politics rather than sales and then down here it says he considers the new climax to this story as one of the happiest achievements of his dc years particularly the fact that echoing moses at the end of the biblical exodus president roosevelt would be allowed to live till nearly the end of the war but not to enter the promised land of peace so Roy is proud of this ending, but maybe Roy was giving the finger to DC regarding their stance on this secret origin 
cutting off the Golden Age characters and also taking away Superman and Batman from the JSA. Hmm. I mean, I, after this story, after telling the origin story of the Justice Society of America, which it felt like his entire run on this series had been building to this point, what was he going to do for a follow-up? Was he going to do the origin of Phantom Lady? Was he going to do the origin of the Ray? Congorilla. <laughs> hey, he comes back one more time for the gay ghost. Sorry, the See, grim ghost. Seven Soldiers of Victory, he could have done. Yeah, true. No, I think this was a good capper and, and an appropriate farewell story. Um, let's. Uh, I guess I want to take a vote on this issue. If you can only have Golden Age Superman and Batman in the story... Or Gudra's ass. <laughs> Shag, what are you voting? Gudra's ass. I mean, come on. That's a loaded question for me. Kyle? I don't even know how you can vote that when you didn't even point that out until it was pointed out to you. <laughs> I'm on board with it now. You're like a Gudra's ass hipster. <laughs> yeah. Can't even pronounce her name right, but yeah, I'm totally in her ass. <laughs> Shut up, Kylo Benning. <laughs> All right. Kylo Ren is a an upstanding undercover boss. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> oh, <yeah>, I'm Matt. <laughs> Oh, that was it, a good second. It would be a shame if Roy Thomas ever listened to this podcast and he determines that the thing that we take away from it most is a cartoon ass. <laughs> it would be a shame if Roy Thomas listened to most of Ryan's podcasts. Yeah, I think right around episode eight is when I told him to go screw himself and kind of feel bad about that in retrospect, but still. All right. Well, uh, Any final thoughts on the issue? Kind of building on that as far as uh, being hated by Roy Thomas. There was once, I think it was a back issue online, they had posted a favorite take on Namor or what you'd like to see. And I had thrown out the idea of people were saying that they'd love to see Roy Thomas revisit the character. And I said, well, no offense to Roy, but my favorite take on Namor was uh, John Byrne's take. And I would have loved to seen corporate Namor square off against corporate Lex Luthor and had a Submariner Superman crossover. And someone on the page knew Roy, and so they showed him the you know message chain or whatever, and then replied for Roy. And in Roy's reply, he called out, much to Kyle Benning's disappointment, I was like, oh, damn, <laughs> Dang, you got yeah, burned by Roy I himself? I, well, I got thrown under the bus by somebody. Uh, dang. Yeah, so. I don't. I don't regret doing it now. I did email Roy Thomas and asked him about the Phantom of the Fair, which was what Ryan was talking about before. And I uh, told Ryan Roy's response to is, would they ever use the Phantom of the Fair going forward or was that intended? And that's when Ryan had his little diatribe there. I think he basically knocked me off for Roy Thomas's, I want to get on his Christmas card list. I think Ryan made that impossible. <laughs> I totally I remember that was the first time that uh, was the first time Al ever talked to me. He sent me this whole thing, this explanation from Roy, and I was like, "Here, I got this right from the horse's mouth," and I just used this to totally attack Roy on the podcast. I'm like, you know, sorry, Al, you kind of did a nice thing for me there, and I just totally turned it around and screwed you. I think my Facebook comment after that was, "Ouch." <laughs> Hopefully, Roy didn't listen. I'm sure he's got other things to do, or not. Uh, I don't know. Probably used to fanboys ranting on the internet by now, anyway. Yeah, I just want to clarify, I'm a, I'm a big fan of his work. I just don't think that uh, his divergence, which obviously DC's policy forced his hand, but his divergence from the original tale is not his finest work, my take on it. But. I can't compare that. You, you're asking for final thoughts. I can't compare this to the original uh, well enough just because it's been 20 plus years since I've read it and it's in the bottom of a comic box in my closet that I can't get to. But as far as, you know, overall, I think it's the comic's enjoyable. You know, certainly we picked it apart and nitpicked it like nerds are exceptionally good at doing. 
But it was a fun read. You know, there's a, there are a lot of good moments to celebrate in the comic. I do like this team of characters, even if it is, you know, Spectre's a mismatch for the team. Same could be said for Firestorm and the Justice League. You know, overpowered characters don't necessarily make sense. Flash is an overpowered character. But if the story is written enjoyably, go for it. It's comics. Mm-hmm. Al, final thoughts on this issue? Like he said, it was a good, I guess, if I can't have my Superman and Batman, this was a good fill-in, a good substitute. I think I enjoyed it 30 years ago when I read it, but as you get older and as you find your joy, you know, in the older issues, this one kind of stands out as maybe something that's really not in line with my current fandom. Uh, But uh, overall, I thought it was a good issue. Some aspects of it I like a little bit more. I think Roy was able to develop the world, the era, a little bit more because that's his forte. That's what he specializes in, is really making you feel like you're in the world of 1940. But sometimes I think he overwrites scenes and doesn't give the artist enough room to breathe and really tell the story. But it was uh, it was an enjoyable issue. I think it was a good capper for his run on the series, again, with the notable exception that he will come back in about 11 issues. Before we go, favorite runs or favorite stories for the Justice Society characters? Let's do some recommended readings. Kyle, if fans of the series, if fans of the Justice Society want to get a good story, what do you recommend? A uh, tough one, and I actually botched this uh, early on. My first encounter or introduction to the JSA was actually probably Justice League of America number 74. had the great Neil Adams cover of uh, Earth 2 Superman stocking Earth 1 in the face with a double-fisted punch. Mm-hmm. That was probably my uh, first introduction, and I love that crossover. I would recommend picking up the Crisis crossovers. That's a pretty affordable way to start and get a 70s introduction to the characters. All-Star Squadron, uh, was it the first 25, 26 issues, and probably, what, the first annual at least, are collected in the All-Star DC Showcase Presents. And then uh, I've actually just, in the last couple of weeks, been going back through uh, Goyer, Robinson's, and John's uh, JSA run from the, the late 90s, early 2000s. Really been enjoying that. There's a lot of great stuff. Uh, really just kind of depends on what uh, storytelling style you like. If you're more of a modern style reader, I would start with that late 90s, early 2000s JSA that uh, eventually became Justice Society of America. That was relaunched with that. That would have been a post-Infinite Crisis with the Thy Kingdom Come story, I think, kicked it off, didn't it? Or it was Next Age, and then Thy Kingdom Come was uh, next yeah. year's worth of stories or so. Al, some favorite readings for the JSA? I'm going to recommend everybody pick up the All-Star Comics Archive Editions. They're fairly inexpensive now online. And Google to see if there's a podcast out there about them. It's it's some fun reading. It's uh, Basically, it's fun to see where everything came from. Shag? I have to echo a lot of Kyle's real quickly. The All-Star Squadron Showcase, the Crisis on Multiple Earth trade paperbacks, all very good stuff. I would also suggest you seek out the Justice Society of America series from the 1990s. It's only 10 issues long. It was an ongoing drawn by Mike Parabek. Wonderful post-crisis Justice Society in their elder years. Uh, really great series. It was beautifully, beautifully rendered. Like uh, It basically would be what a JSA animated series would have looked like. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a gorgeous book. And then uh, I want to echo also Kyle's suggestion about the JSA series, specifically just the JSA series. I would – while the Justice Society of America series had some highlights, I don't think it holds a candle to the, the previous JSA run that went uh, I think like 81 issues or something like that. That JSA series. And you can get most of that in trades, too. Great stuff. Yeah, you can get the trade of America versus the Justice Society of America, which is pretty good. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I would recommend some outside avenues for finding these characters. Again, there were the ways that I first met them. Look up the Starman omnibuses. Every once in a while, he would delve into some of these older Golden Age characters. Uh, Sandman Mystery Theater. They collected, I think, like the first third of that series in about eight trade paperbacks. I just found out for DC's May solicitations, they're doing a new one. It's Sandman Mystery Theater Volume 1. It collects the first 12 issues, so like the first three story arcs. I don't know if they're planning to continue going with that. I don't know why now all of a sudden they're doing a new Sandman collection, but I'm happy about it. And that Golden Age miniseries, if you can find that one. Mm, That was really good. Guys, thank you very, very much for being part of this special episode of the Secret Origins podcast. Mr. Al Girding, where can people find you online if they need to hear more about you and the All-Star Comics? I just started the All-Star Comics Review podcast. We are about ready to release episode two, so get uh, jump on it now, and uh, now that it's new and fresh. But uh, I also have a Facebook page regarding All-Star Comics Review, and uh, I also have a separate page under my online name of Van Z, so you're more than welcome to contact me there if you want to discuss great comics. Kyle Benning, do you have any shows to plug? Yeah, I have uh, probably seven shows or something like that on my uh, King Size Comics Giant Size Fun podcast feed. Listeners of this podcast might be interested in the Tales of the Golden Age podcast. The episodes typically drop uh, Wednesdays on that. And then I have a Crisis on Multiple Earths podcast that covers those uh, crisis team-ups between the JLA and JSA. Uh, That's been on like a seven or eight-month hiatus, but as we're recording this on a Wednesday night, a new episode is actually going up on Friday, so two days from now. And then uh, if you like Golden Age comics or like Superman or the original Captain Marvel, you might like my new podcast, which is on its own feed, the Superman and Captain Marvel Power Hour podcast. At least for the first year or so, most episodes will be devoted to covering the Superman from the 30s to the 70s hardcover and the Shazam from the 40s to the 70s hardcover collection to really follow both of those characters' evolution during those decades. You just had to say Shazam, so I need to include that sound effect at the end of this episode. (laughs) And Shag, I wasn't going to give you the opportunity to plug your shows, but Al said you were right like three times in this episode, so I guess you've earned it. Where can people (laughs) find you online? Uh, The best place would be go to fireandwaterpodcast.com. That's where you can find all the family of shows from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, uh, including the show itself is is hosted there. You can find me on the Fire and Water Podcast, the Who's Who Podcast, occasionally on the Hero Points Podcast. And by the time this episode hits, uh, we'll be just around the time when the first episode of Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast will also hit the airwaves. Thank you very much, everybody. Shag, Kyle, Al. It was great to have you on this episode. I had a ton of fun. I hope you guys did. Listeners, thank you very much for being this far. This is the final episode. I'm quitting the sh- No, I'm not. But I'll be back in a few seconds with listener feedback. Thank you, gentlemen. Last episode received Twitter favorites and retweets from Alan Middleton, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Reflections, Chris Sheehan, Craig101, Daniel Budnick, David Fiore, Diablo Frank, Dr. G, Nerdologist, Fire and Water Network, Illegal Machine, It's Plastic Man, Jim Bow, Jim Romoldi, Joseph Crawford, Keith G. Baker, Kent Byers, King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun Podcast, Mario, Max Romero, 
Paul Scavito, Radio vs. the Martians, Sergeant Merica, Sin, Trekker Talk, Waiting for Doom, and Warlord Worlds. New Facebook likes and shares came from Al Sedano, Andrew Callas, Anthony Durso, Bradley Null, Brian Green, Chad Bokelman, Chris Franklin, Clinton Robison, Coffee and Comics Blog, David Ace Gutierrez, David Foster, Dale Dale, Doug Miller, Earth Destruction Directive, The Fire and Water Podcast Network, Gotham Shioran, Gene Hendricks, Gord Tolton, Greg Arujo, Igor Glushkin, It's Plastic Man, Jason Roberts, Jay Jones, Jimmy McGlinchey, Joe Crawford, Keith G. Baker, Kyle Benning, Mark M. Ryan, Max Romero, Michael Wagner, Nicholas Prom, Ruth Sutherland, Sean Emmons, Sean Brock, Sean Myers, Siskoid, Steve Leach, Tim Wallace, Trevor Owen Williams, Van Z, and Zeb Oswald. As for comments left on the Fire and Water website, as well as on Twitter and Facebook, one of the things about the last issue with Elongated Man and Plastic Man is that it divided listeners, making many of them feel like they had to choose who they liked more. It was cool hearing people say, I've always liked Plass more, or I'm Team Dibney. It's like the Secret Origins Civil War. Whose stretchable side are you on? Anyway, during my talk with Bradley Null about Elongated Man's origin, we looked up Gerard Jones on Mike's Amazing World of Comics. That Elongated Man story was Jones's first writing credit on the website, but as several listeners pointed out, it was far from his first work in comics. Chris Franklin, Jeff Nettleton, and others all pointed out that Gerard Jones wrote comic book histories in book and magazine forms, and also wrote comics for smaller publishers before he landed work at DC. A lot of people voiced support for Ty Templeton's cover for issue 30. Listening to that episode, I came across as pretty ambivalent or critical on the cover, but honestly, I do like it. I wish the faces were more expressive, yes, and I still think the colors don't pop as much as they should, and a black and white cover version might be better, but these are small gripes. I really do like the cover a lot. So, moving on to specific comments. Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast said, I can see Bradley's point on this story. It seems an odd way to promote a bookless hero by portraying him as kind of a loser jerk. Jones does nail the Ralph-Sue dynamic, which I always loved. Their relationship reminds me quite a bit of mine and Cindy's, which makes Identity Crisis all the harder to swallow. Yeah, I don't want to dwell on that comparison anymore at all, Chris. Um, as for the Plastic Man story, Chris said, I think you hit the nail on the head, Ryan. Plas could be DC's Deadpool, but they seem to have no idea how to work any character that isn't dark, grim, and gritty these days. It struck me after the episode that DC already has their version of Deadpool, and I'm not talking about Ambush Bug. Harley Quinn is the oversaturated, oversexed, foul-mouthed, fourth-wall-breaking psychopath of the DC universe. She even has the same color scheme as Deadpool. Well, I mean, until they gave her blue pigtails in the Suicide Squad movie. Rob Kelly from the brand new Pod Dylan podcast said, I was really looking forward to this episode because I love both characters and knew that Plastic Man equaled an appearance by Max Romero. Max did not disappoint. I think Steven DeStefano's work added a nice bit of grit to all of the silly proceedings. Uh, Rob mentioned that Bradley did a great job on the Elongated Man segment and said that Elongated Man miniseries was fabulous. I was really sorry it never developed into anything past that. Parabek was a great choice to do the art as, as Ty Templeton here. Diablo Frank from the Marvel Superheroes podcast posted a lengthy comment about the Elongated Man. I mean, naturally. 
Just reading part of it, Frank said of Ralph Dibney, he's a detective and a mixer and a class clown and a reliable team player and a stretchable superhero, but not an avatar of any of those four-color disciplines. Everything he does, somebody else does better. The best thing about Ralph is his marriage to Sue, and even in that, they're nowhere near the power couple of Reed and, um, also Sue. Man, Sue Dibney isn't even the best Sue married to an elongated hero with a keen intellect. I mean, I can't argue that. Reed and Sue Richards are two of my favorite Marvel characters. Then later, Frank came back for an unprecedented single-paragraph response to Plastic Man. I hated Plas as a kid, but was re-educated about him by Art Spiegelman and Jack Cole as an adult. I now realize that he's one of the greatest comic book characters from one of the best strips in the medium's history, and DC Comics have never come close to reflecting that since acquiring him. Also, I want to draft him for my DC version of the original 70s unteam Defenders of important heroic icons that don't belong in the JLA. Okay, you piqued my curiosity, Frank. Who else would you put on the DC Defenders roster? Rook Wilder said, Point of parliamentary procedure. The one black arm was how Cole first drew Plastic Man in Police Comics number 1 in 1941. Red highlights on the black in the first appearance. He switched to the two equal red arms in Police Comics number 4. I noticed that in the first appearance, one arm looked sort of black, but with the red highlights... I always assumed it was just shading on that side of the body. I don't know what Cole intended, though. I'm probably wrong, and Rook Wilder is probably right. So, good catch. Uh, on the last episode, I put forth a hypothetical situation about Plastic Man being a villain of the Justice League. Siskoid from the Lonely Hearts Romance Comics podcast said, Be careful what you wish for. The Flashpoint universe had just such a thing. He would enter your body through your nose and mouth and blow you up from the inside. Someone must have been proud of that one. Okay, fair point, Siskoid. Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog said, I've never really been an elongated man fan. My favorite part of the whole thing being the relationship with Sue. While I would crave a thin man riff, I don't know if the market could support it. I mean, how many TCM-loving Myrna Loy fans are there walking into comic stores these days? I, I think just you and Rob... So last episode, I mentioned that I always thought Ralph's stretchable tonic was pronounced Gingold. I guess everyone else pronounces it Gingold. Uh, Martin Gray from Too Dangerous for a Girl said, It was funny hearing Gingold pronounced with a soft G. The gin bit makes it sound so much naughtier. Uh, Martin added, If I had to choose, I'd go for Ralph over Plass, Susie over Woozy. Heck, Plass never sent his ear down a fireplace. Okay, that is one of my favorite visuals from a long-gated man's Detective Comics run. And finally, Martin asked if Ralph Dibney had appeared on the Flash TV show. Joe X responded to Martin's questions, saying that Ralph was named as one of the people that died when the particle accelerator went off on the show. Yeah, I'm sure that's permanent. Richard Field said, While I'm not a huge DC Comics fan, I'm starting to become one through back issues. I was a Marvel zombie, and sadly, I even bought the first few years of Image. Yeah, I was to blame for Youngblood giving Rob Liefeld a paycheck. Anyway, I love Plastic Man, and this podcast delivered once again. Please continue the awesome work. Will do, Richard, and thank you very much for those nice words. Chad Bokelman from the Lantern cast, clearly feeling spurned by the fact that I asked his co-host to be on my latest episode of Give Me Those Star Wars, decided to start some crap by commenting, I feel like I have to ask, why the hell does the DC fan community care so much about Ralph and Sue? 
Is it solely because of the emotional components of identity crisis and the fallout with regards to Ralph in 52? Because I highly doubt the Justice League Detroit and Justice League Europe eras were a cornerstone of his history. Not because they're bad comics, but because they're action-based team comics, not traditionally associated with earth-shattering character development. I hear your passion when talking about the romance potential that could be brought back into the comics with the two of them. However, from your recap of Elongated Man's history, it doesn't seem like there was enough there to warrant the near-ravenous desire DC fans seem to possess when it comes to resurrecting Ralph and Sue. Well, a number of fans responded to Chad, defending the validity, I guess, of Ralph and Sue's comic book romance. Martin Gray, Jeff Nettleton, and Paul Hicks from Waiting for Doom all mentioned other stories and series where Ralph and Sue's relationship was well-developed and functionally effective. From reading stories from Detective Comics, I think his marriage to Sue was pretty central to the character and very unique, but maybe Chad is right in that I'm bringing the burden of foreknowledge to my reading of those stories because I met Identity Crisis first. I can't say how that might have colored my reading, but I'm sure it did. Nathaniel Wayne from Council of Geeks said, It was a pretty fascinating thing to listen to somebody's opinion evolve and change over the course of the conversation in the Elongated Man segment. It shows an open-mindedness for one thing, but it's just a flat-out interesting process to hear. That was referring to Bradley's changing perspective on the Elongated Man story at several points during our talk. Then, when I mentioned my surprise that DC hadn't made a more concentrated push to market Plastic Man as their Deadpool, Nathaniel said, I think it speaks to an across-the-board consistent tone that DC seems to have favored ever since Crisis on Infinite Earth smashed everything together. I may be speaking out of turn, as I'm not nearly as well-read or up-to-date as many of the listeners are, but my perception as a more casual reader is that Marvel allows for more outliers or niche products, while DC seems to just be aiming for mainstream appeal on almost everything they put out. I don't know if it's fair to say that DC is more consistently mainstream and averse to risk-taking, but I can certainly cite a lot of examples where that seems to be the case. There are, of course, times in their publishing history where they've tried to appeal to more niche markets, but it sure feels like a long time ago. I mean, I remember when the New 52 was first starting, DC had all of these different pockets of books. The traditional superhero books, the Young Justice books, the Dark Horror books, the Edgy Mercenary books. I thought it was fantastic that they'd be diversifying themselves that way. But then I read the books, and they all had a very house style. Animal Man and Swamp Thing were great when the New 52 started, but they were written just like superhero comics with slightly more horrific elements. The Young Justice books weren't for kids. They weren't all ages appropriate. They were just books about teenagers, but still written the same way as the grown-ups of the Justice League. It all felt very much the same, and the books that tried to be different got cancelled pretty quickly. But then last year they do this DCU launch with 12 new books like Black Canary and The Green Team and Prez and Starfire. These are different books. These aren't mainstream titles. And none of them sold well enough, so they're all being cancelled after 12 issues so that the same 20 comics that do sell well on a monthly basis will now be published twice a month. Now, you can ask, do those niche books fail because they're not mainstream or because DC doesn't know how to market them? I have no real idea. 
As for Marvel, I don't think they're that different. Maybe they take a few more risks with books like Ms. Marvel, but there have also been times in recent history when Marvel published over 20 comics a month that were connected to the X-Men, Wolverine, or Deadpool. They also put out Star Wars issue 1 with a hundred variant covers. I guess if you could do that, you can indulge in a book about a Muslim teenage superhero and whatever the unbeatable Squirrel Girl is. Anyway... Uh, I did not think that Ralph Dibney had turned up yet in the New 52. Jimmy McGlinchey left a comment pointing out that there is a character in Gail Simone's Secret Six called Big Shot who has been revealed is Ralph Dibney, and that Sue is alive also in the New 52 universe. Okay, I'm going to point out right now, I did not realize that Gail Simone was writing a New Secret Six book in the New 52, so somebody dropped the ball on that one. Maybe it was me not being aware, or maybe that was just failure on DC's part. I, I, I honestly didn't know that she was writing a new Secret Six book. Jimmy also said, One trivia point on Plastic Man, which I picked up on reading the Showcase Presents volume of Dial H for Hero, Plastic Man was the only existing hero duplicated by Robbie Reed, as opposed to creating a totally new hero from the dial. That is crazy. I would love to find out why that is. Jeff Nettleton said, Gerard Jones has a nice touch with Ralph and Sue and captures the thin men aspect. Mike Barr and James Robinson are the only other writers I can think of who could have done equally well with this. I do have to say, though, it is odd that a Nebraska boy would be a Cardinals fan rather than the Kansas City Royals. Uh, Jeff goes on, I've always wanted to enjoy Plastic Man, but the original quality stories are so much better than 99.99% of what DC has done with the character. I wasn't a big fan of the cartoon, though it was okay at the start. It was a little too juvenile for me. It could have been the tick before the tick existed, had they played it a bit straighter. Jack Cole was one of the really great creators of comics in the Golden Age. He worked at Archie on the Comet before working for Quality. Aside from creating Midnight so Busy Arnold had his own spirit, Jack also created Ghost Patrol as a counterpart to Blackhawk. Cole was also a favorite of Hugh Hefner, and produced a lot of great gag cartoons for the glory days of Playboy. Unfortunately, he had a very sad ending, taking his own life. No one was ever sure why he did it. And the final comment comes from the irredeemable Shag from the new Justice League International Bwahaha podcast, who said, Fantastic episode. Great podcast debut for Bradley Null, and always wonderful to hear Max talk Plastic Man. Wow, that is going to be all for this episode of Secret Origins. I want to thank everyone who promoted the show by sharing or liking on social media. Thank you everyone who left a comment on the website or Facebook or Twitter. Thank you to my three awesome guest hosts, Al Girding, Kyle Benning, and Shag. The next episode looks at the post-crisis origin of the Justice League of America. It will not be out next week. I need another break to catch up on things, and that episode is already going to be different than the rest of this podcast. You will know why and understand that when it comes out, which should be two weeks from now. This is not a three-month off-season like last time, just a bye week. In the meantime, if you need a Secret Origins fix, why not go back and replay one of the earlier episodes? Or you can hear my guest appearance on the first episode of Justice League International Bwahaha podcast, hosted by Shag. That just came out, you ought to check it. Uh, you can also peruse my other podcasts, two of them are on the Fire and Water Network, Give Me Those Star Wars, and Power of Fishnets, the Black Canary and Zatanna podcast. 
I also have two older podcasts available on iTunes, Dead Both and Spies and Flowers and Fishnets. You can also hear me on G.I. Joe, a real American headcast, hosted by Aaron Head Moss. The last thing that I will advertise, and I don't generally promote this on my own podcasts, but why not? Uh, I am the creator and writer of the webcomic My Pet Ninja. I am also the co-creator of the web strip Red and Green with Paul Scavito, who appeared on episode 13 of this show talking about The Whip. Both Red and Green and My Pet Ninja can be found at risingsuncomics.com. And that is it. Thanks again, everybody, and I will talk to you again in two weeks. Secret Origins Podcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01, or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on this show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. Thank you.